Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio. I am Jonathan Pritchett and tonight we have a debate and it is my pleasure to moderate tonight's debate on the question, is annihilationism heresy? Now for clarity, we want to make it clear that by heresy, we mean that which is so contrary to the apostolic deposit of faith that we find in Scripture that it constitutes another gospel. To put a finer point on it, if you affirm inerrant or uh, annihilationism, does that mean that that person will likely end up in the version of hell they reject? If the affirmative is true, yes, it's very possible. And if the negative is true, then no. So that is the discussion tonight, and we understand that it is a sensitive and contentious discussion and debate. But given that, we also feel that it is an important one to have in a public, open forum. We also believe that just because the topic can be sensitive or contentious, it doesn't mean that the debaters will be contentious or uncivil to one another. We are hoping tonight will be an informative debate, and while our debaters are passionate in their convictions and firm in them, they will still be speaking the truth in love, hoping to persuade you, the viewer, and perhaps even each other of their position. Likewise, we ask that those who are in the live chat also be respectful, and if not, we have moderators that will see you out. So, Taking the affirmative position tonight is Dr. Josh Peterson. Dr. Peterson is the pastor of Providence Christian Church in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, the city in which he resides along with his wife and daughter. He holds a bachelor's degree in counseling from Grace College, along with a master's of divinity and a doctor of ministry from Liberty Theological Seminary. He is also a regular blogger on a variety of theological and pastoral topics, and this is his first public moderated debate. Taking the negative is Professor Chris Date. Professor Date is an author, speaker, debater, and professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. He has written two books. He has had several journal articles published in academic journals and has participated in many formal debates. He also hosts the Theo Apologetics podcast, and perhaps is best known for his work with Rethinking Hell. This is a movement all around the globe that seeks to inform the public regarding the conditional immortality position through various media such as blogs, podcasts, as well as live conferences and other speaking engagements. He lives in the Pacific Northwest with his wife of 20 years and their four sons. The format of tonight's debate is as follows. Each side will present 10-minute opening statements, followed by each side offering a 5-minute rebuttal. We will then go into a 30-minute period of open discussion, 
This is not a timed set for each side to ask questions of the other, but we are hoping for a fruitful and free exchange on the topic of tonight's debate. As moderator, I hope to stay largely out of the discussion, but I will use my prerogative, if necessary, to step in to bring clarity if I think something is not clear from one or both of the speakers, or also to press a specific issue, or to bring back a conversation that I think has gone off the rails and is not germane to the central point of the debate. But other than that, I'll stay out of it. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get started with Dr. Peterson giving his 10-minute opening statement, and you may begin when you start speaking. The time will start. Well, thank you. Like Dr. Pritchett said, that this is not a debate about which is true. Annihilationism or eternal conscious torment. This debate is actually about whether annihilationism, if it's not what the Bible teaches, is heresy. And I do believe that annihilationism is heresy. But we have to ask the question, what makes a doctrine heretical? Any doctrine that denies an explicit tenet of the gospel or any of the gospel's necessary implications is a heretical doctrine, as Paul says in Galatians 1.8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, then let him be accursed. Anything that changes the gospel explicitly or implicitly is a heresy. And there are many explicit heresies. The book of Galatians condemns one where the Judaizers deny justification by faith alone which is an explicit tenet of the gospel. Therefore, the Judaizers were heretics for explicitly changing the gospel. However, there are also implicit heresies. Those who deny the hypostatic union, for example, like the Docetists in 1 John 4 and in 2 John, they're heretics because they deny a necessary doctrine implicit to the gospel, which is the hypostatic union. The Docetists would have claimed to have believed in Jesus for salvation, which is an explicit tenet of the gospel. But they so misdefined Jesus's identity and nature that they implicitly changed the gospel. You can't have atonement if Jesus is not exactly the same as those for whom he died, except for sin, obviously. Therefore, docetists were heretics for implicitly changing the gospel. Explicit and implicit denials of the gospel are heresy. And therefore, if I can demonstrate that annihilationism either explicitly or implicitly denies a core tenet of the gospel, then I will have demonstrated that annihilationism is in fact heresy. So how do we, or how does annihilationism deny the gospel implicitly or explicitly? It doesn't do so explicitly because Chris and annihilationists wouldn't have the credibility they have if they did deny it explicitly. Rather, the denials are implicit. First, annihilationists implicitly deny the final judgment. It is absolutely true that the final judgment is an explicit tenet of the gospel in Romans 2, 15 and 16. On that day, the last day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Clearly, the reality of the final judgment is an explicit tenet of the gospel. Of course, annihilationists like Chris agree that there will be a final judgment. However, I propose that they implicitly deny the reality of the final judgment and implicitly deny the gospel consequently. And let me see if I can prove how. Imagine if someone taught that the righteous won't actually experience bliss for eternity. Rather, imagine someone misdefined eternal life by teaching the righteous would only experience bliss momentarily before ceasing to exist and would be remembered positively for all time by God. Or imagine if someone was a quasi-Sadducee that everyone ceases to exist after the resurrection. Obviously, Scripture doesn't teach that, but what if someone thought they did? What if someone affirmed the future resurrection 
uh, but the uh, the annihilation of everybody is that heretical? I hope the listeners would agree that it is heretical to say Scripture teaches the righteous would only experience momentary bliss before ceasing to exist, or that everyone just ceases to exist after the resurrection. It's heretical because it implicitly denies the final judgment by changing its nature, by changing its outcome. Now, I know that Chris will say the annihilation is biblical, but that excuse doesn't work for the person who hypothetically posits that the righteous will cease to exist, and that excuse doesn't work for annihilationists either. Chris sincerely believes the Bible affirms annihilationism, but I must respectfully disagree. Scripture does teach eternal conscious bliss for the righteous in the kingdom and eternal conscious torment for the wicked in hell. That's the fundamental nature of the final judgment, and any change to the final judgment is an implicit denial of the gospel which would include annihilationism, which says the wicked experience temporary punishment before dying and ceasing to exist. If we condemn as a heretic the hypothetical person who says the righteous only experience bliss temporarily because they implicitly deny the final judgment, then we must also condemn the annihilationists too. They have fundamentally changed the nature of the judgment to the point that is unrecognizable. And if the, the final judgment is fundamental to the gospel, and it is, then annihilationists have denied the gospel implicitly, which is heresy. Second, annihilationists also implicitly deny the justice and wrath of God and the atonement. I hope everyone can agree that substitutionary atonement is fundamental to the gospel. However, if you listen to annihilationists, you'll hear them say frequently that justice is the death of the body, not torment from God the Father. For example, uh, Chris said in his response to James White in the one hour, 11 minute mark, that we don't think punishment is torment. We think the punishment for sin is death. Or in, uh, on the Remnant Radio podcast on annihilationism, Chris said at the 54 minute mark, it seems very clear that, we, that what Jesus did as our substitute was die for us, not be tormented for us. Or in his McMaster's article on the atonement, Chris said on page 79, Yet, as has been demonstrated, the consistent biblical testimony is that as a substitute, Jesus died. Even texts which speak of his agony discuss it in the context of his atoning death. Annihilationists think the atonement only required Jesus to die, not to suffer under the tormenting wrath of God the Father. However, this changes the nature of the atonement, which includes wrath and torment according to Scripture. Romans 3.25 and 26 says the Father put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show his justice at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, propitiation means satisfaction of divine wrath. And without a satisfaction of divine wrath on the cross, there is no atonement and there is no justification. Isaiah 53.5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Without Jesus being chastised by the Father, there is no atonement, and there is no justification. In fact, Jesus' suffering under God the Father's wrath is the only way to logically explain his terror in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he wept and sweat drops of blood and asked for the cup to be taken from him. Now, Christians have suffered martyrdom, for example, under Nero, in horrible ways, and they went to their deaths singing hymns of joy. So how do we explain the dichotomy between their pre-death experience of joy and Jesus's pre-death experience of horror? Why were they so much more tough, so to speak? The only way to explain the difference is by recognizing that Jesus didn't just die. He also took the wrath of the Father and atoned for sin. Atonement, therefore, is not just physical death, but also suffering under the wrath of the Father. 
And if that's what atonement is and what Jesus had to do, then we cannot mess with that definition of wrath and death. This is important because Chris rightfully says that those who deny the necessity of Jesus's physical death are heretics. For example, he said on the Remnant Radio podcast on annihilationism at the 54-minute mark that that argument that what Jesus did was suffer the equivalent of eternity on the cross of torment is actually heresy if it's offered in that way because it ends up making his death not part of his substitutionary atoning work. And Chris is right. If someone denies the necessity of Jesus' physical death to atone for sin, then that person is a heretic. However, physical death is only one side of the justice coin. Justice isn't just killing Jesus' body physically, it's also having him suffer spiritually under the Father's wrath. It didn't require Jesus to just die, it required him to suffer spiritually. And annihilationists like Chris deny the necessity of Jesus suffering under the wrath of the Father. And since they deny the necessary aspect of the atonement, wrath, by his own standards, Chris would have to say that he is a heretic if he's being consistent. And then lastly, annihilationism results in other Christological and soteriological heresies if you fall into their conclusions. For example, John Stott, his annihilationism resulted in him being an inclusivist, offering a backdoor to salvation outside of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, which is an explicit change to the gospel. And in Chris's case, it's resulted in him being a, a, a physicalist, which is a denial ultimately of the hypostatic union. And by physicalist, I'll let him define it. In his Theopologetics episode, An Introduction to Christian Physicalism, at the 39-minute mark, Chris said, An anthropological physicalist like me thinks that there is one kind of substance that makes up a human being, and that one kind of substance is material. Specifically, the substance is a body. So what I am made up of, in my view, is a body. Period. And this is a fundamental denial of the hypostatic union as defined by the Chalcedonian and Athenate which say Jesus is a human because he has a physical body and a rational soul. Chris's annihilationism led him to, to physicalism, which is an implicit denial of the gospel and the hypostatic union. Now, Chris will undoubtedly say that he affirms the final judgment, penal substitutionary atonement, and the hypostatic union. However, I will mention that the Arians also said that they affirmed the deity of Jesus. It was only when you dug and pried that you found out the Arians were speaking a different language while using the same words like divinity. That they claim to believe in the deity of Jesus just the same way as annihilationists claim to believe in the final judgment and penal substitutionary atonement. But they so misdefine the final judgment and the atonement, and in Chris's case, the hypostatic union, that they cannot be considered orthodox Christians, but rather must be considered heretics. Thank you for that opening statement, Dr. Peterson. Chris, you may begin your opening statement when you start speaking. Chris, we do not hear you. Sorry, I had myself muted while uh, while Josh was presenting. Would you mind restarting my clock? Yes. Go ahead. Thank you. I apologize. Okay, here we go. I want to begin by talking briefly about the role of a negative opening statement like this one. The role of a negative opening statement in a debate like this is to present a positive case for denying the thesis, the thesis being that annihilationism and conditionalism are heresies. Importantly, then, this is not going to be a rebuttal to the opening statement uh, offered by my esteemed opponent. That will be in my next presentation. Remember the proverb that says the one who states his case for, first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Um, you need to 
to withhold judgment if you were impressed by my opponent's case until you've heard my rebuttal. And my request is that you would do just that. Now, it's important to recognize that the doctrine of eternal torment is not merely about eternal conscious punishment. It's also the belief that God will render the resurrected bodies of the lost immortal so they can physically live forever in hell. This is the consistent and virtually unanimous testimony of traditionalists, believers in eternal torment, since at least the time of Tatian and Athenagoras in the latter half of the second century, before which Christians didn't believe in eternal torment. And so, for example, you can see this in the writings of Augustine, you can see it in the writings of John Calvin, you can see it in the writings of even Wayne Grudem, that the doctrine of eternal torment maintains the lost will be raised, made bodily immortal, and live physically forever in hell. By contrast, whereas eternal torment is a therefore a belief in unconditional immortality, according to which God will indiscriminately make all humanity immortal on the resurrection, conditional immortality, the view that I mean, that I'm representing here, means only that those who meet the condition of being saved will be made immortal upon being raised. Annihilationism is the other side of that coin. It means that those who do not meet that condition will be killed, slain, executed, both in body and soul, for which reason they will consequently cease to be. Now, with that in mind, I want to offer five reasons for thinking that this is not heresy. Number one, it is consistent with a commitment to biblical authority, infallibility, and even inerrancy. Number two, it is consistent with the recognized essentials of the Christian faith. Number three, it enjoys historic pedigree, that is to say it's not novel. Number four, it's consistent with all the early ecumenical creeds. And number five, it's consistent with popular evangelical statements of faith. So let me dig into those each with a little bit more detail. First of, first of all, biblical authority and reliability. It is true that some some conditionalists, but not all of us, begin to rethink hell because of emotions and philosophy. But the vast majority of them become convinced of this view because of what they perceive to be the Bible's clear and consistent biblical testimony um, in support of it. Some conditionalists, including me, were influenced solely by exegesis of Scripture. We never had a problem with the doctrine of eternal torment, but we were convinced by Scripture. In fact, some of us wished and still wish that we could be believers in eternal torment again because its rejection is typically met with a great deal of fallout. So our commitment is to biblical revelation, so much so that we're willing to uh, accept that kind of fallout. And just as a sampling of what we perceive the Bible to be clearly and consistently saying is, number one, that immortality will only be granted by God to the saved. And so the in Genesis 3, 22 and 23, God explicitly withholds access to the tree of life from Adam and, Le from Adam and Eve, so they cannot eat from it and thereby go on living. But that tree of life reappears at the other end of Scripture in Revelation 22, 2, where only the saved have access to its fruit. It's why Jesus says that only the risen saved will be unable to die in Luke 20, 35 and 36, when he says that it's only those who are counted worthy to attain to the resurrection and to that age who will be unable to die anymore. Um, this is just a sampling of that body of biblical evidence. Another reset of biblical evidence is the substitutionary death of Christ. Um, the typological, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were typological pointing forward to Christ, and in these typological sacrifices, the life of the sacrifice was taken in the place of those whose lives were otherwise forfeit. And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus is consistently and repeatedly said to have died for sinners, the English preposition for, translating either huper or anti in the Greek, both of which are recognized by biblical scholars to mean substitution. Um, and specifically, the physical death is very often what is on the lips of New Testament authors when they talk about his substitutionary death. 
Finally, there are reams and reams and reams of biblical data that make it clear that the resurrected lost will die in hell. Eternal fire kills, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, 8 and 9. It kills the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Jude 7. The body and souls of the wicked will be slain, according to Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. They will be burned to ashes, or at least as if burned to ashes, according to Jesus in Matthew 13, 30, and Peter in 2 Peter 2, 6. Again, this is just a sampling. I'm not trying to make the case that this view is true, only that this is a sampling of the biblical data that convinces us conditionalists that our view is true. Number two, Christian and evangelical essentials. Christians agree that there are only some doctrines that are essential or definitional of the faith. Um, meanwhile, we tolerate diversity on a host of secondary non-essentials, the, the, the topic of election, predestination, the nature of tongues, whether creation is old or young or progressive, etc. And this is because we accept a maxim that has been mistakenly attributed to Augustine, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. The historian Philip Schaff, the church historian, calls this the watchword of Christian peacemakers. That's what we ought to want to be. And this involves uh, maintaining unity on the essentials while tolerating charitably a difference of opinion on the non-essentials. So what do Christians identify as the essentials? Well, everyone sins requiring God's grace. We affirm the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the hypostatic union of Jesus' divine and human natures. We affirm Jesus' virgin birth, his sinless life, death, burial, and bodily resurrection from the dead. We affirm Jesus' Jesus' future return and the resurrection of all humanity. We affirm the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Indeed, many of us, including me, the penal substitutionary atoning work of Christ. And we affirm salvation by grace through faith alone. We conditionalists give a hearty yes to all of these, or at least we can, and many of us do, including me. So our view is consistent with the essentials of the faith, and we will drill into that more during the rebuttal and cross-examination. Number three, conditionalism enjoys historic pedigree. It's not novel. Clement of Rome said in the first century that blessed are the gifts of God, including life and immortality. Ignatius of Antioch says that Jesus died in order to breathe immortality into his church. The Epistle of Barnabas says that the lost person will be destroyed with his works using the same verb he uses to describe the death of Jesus. The Didache says that immortality has been made known to the church through Jesus. And Irenaeus of Lyon says that the lost person deprives himself of continuance and length of days forever and ever. All of these writers are writing at, at, at the same time as or earlier than the first Christian writers we see teaching eternal torment, namely Tatian of, Ath uh, of Adiabene and Athenagoras of Athens. Fast forward several centuries to the 1900s and you have the anti-slavery activist and Methodist George Storrs, the Anglican Bishop Charles Ellicott, the Anglican canon Henry Constable, the Episcopal rector William Huntington, and then in the 1900s, the Anglican theologian and Pope of Evangelicalism John Stott, the Anglican New Testament scholar Philip Edgecombe Hughes, the defender of inerrancy John Wenham, the Southern Baptist biblical scholar E. Earl Ellis, and now in the 21st century, Terence Thiessen, who is a Calvinist theologian and author, and these are just a sampling of all of these centuries, including the current one. I could go on and name more. So this view in does enjoy a very long... Um, and, and prodigious history. Fourthly, our view is consistent with the early ecumenical creeds. The Apostles' Creed expresses belief that Jesus will come to judge the quick and the dead after resurrecting the body. We affirm that. The Nicene Creed says we believe that Christ will come to judge in the quick and the dead after resurrecting them. We believe that. The Chalcedonian Creed is silent on judgment. We will talk about Christology shortly, I'm sure. And the Athanasian Creed says that the wicked will perish everlastingly, um, that men will rise again, and they that have done evil will then go into everlasting fire. We agree. Conditionalism is consistent with all of these earliest ecumenical creeds, during which were authored, by the way, and signed off on by ecumenical councils at a time where all three views of hell all coexisted.
Finally, the, my view of hell is consistent with popular evangelical statements of faith. So the Reforming Catholic Confession, for example, is a confession authored and signed by Protestants trying to affirm a mere Protestantism. And as part of that confession, they say consigning that God will consign any who persist in unbelief to an everlasting fate apart from him. My view is consistent with that. The National Association of Evangelicals says that we believe in the resurrection and they that are lost under the resurrection of damnation. The same thing is said by the World Evangelical Alliance. We affirm those things. We also affirm what is said by the UK Evangelical Alliance, that we believe that God will raise all people to judgment and that some will go into eternal condemnation. We wholeheartedly agree. So conditionalism and annihilationism are consistent with evangelical statements of faith. So let me sum up the five reasons that I've defended here before we go into our rebuttals. Five reasons for accepting that conditional immortality and annihilationism are not heresy. Number one, our views are consistent with a commitment to biblical authority, infallibility, and even inerrancy. I am an, an inerrantist, for example. Number two, our views are consistent with the recognized essentials of the Christian faith. Number three, our view enjoys historic pedigree, both very ancient, in fact, more ancient than the doctrine of eternal torment, and it's not novel. Number four, it is consistent with all the early ecumenical creeds, like the ones that we just mentioned, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And number five, it is consistent with popular evangelical statements of faith, like those published by the World Evangelical Alliance, the UK Evangelical Alliance, the National Association of Evangelicals, and the Reforming Catholic Confession, among a host of others. So for these five reasons, I encourage you to accept that conditionalism and annihilationism, if, even if false, are not heretical, and I look forward to rebuttals and cross-examination. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Date, for your opening statement, and well done to both of you for coming in under time. Very impressive for 10 minutes not being a long time to state everything that you probably want to say. So now we're going to move into our rebuttal rounds, starting with Dr. Peterson, and your time will begin as soon as you start speaking. Well, Chris said that it, a view is orthodox if it affirms the Christian essentials. But I think if you go back and, and look at what I said, you'd see that it doesn't technically affirm the essentials. Annihilationism doesn't because it so misdefines the nature of the final judgment that in the same way, if you misdefine the nature of Jesus, you will have in turn denied the gospel. Same thing with penal substitutionary atonement, a, a fundamental aspect of the gospel and uh, the Christian faith that by misdefining the nature of the penal aspect to simply death rather than wrath and death, it has limited and denied the scope of the atonement and therefore the gospel. And then again, the hypostatic union is essential. And unless we say that Jesus has a human soul and a human body, we can label anyone who disagrees with that as not orthodox. It's why the Chalcedonian Creed was created after all, which ties into another thing Chris mentioned, that if you affirm the, the ecumenical creeds, you are orthodox to an extent, because Catholics can affirm them, we don't automatically label them orthodox, but I understand this is one of the reasons he gave for uh, defending his orthodoxy. But Chris doesn't actually affirm the Chalcedonian Athanasian creeds, which both say Jesus is a perfect man because he's a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. Whereas, as we'll see in a minute, I do not believe Chris can agree with that, that he would rather say Jesus is only a physical human body and a, and a divine spirit, God the Son, which is actually a, a resurrection of the heresy of Apollinarism, the God and Abad heresy, which says that uh, Jesus is merely a human body filled with the divine spirit. And that was actually what the Chalcedonian Creed was drafted to condemn. But getting into the historical pedigree, I do want to point out that apart from the list of books that he mentioned, which are all basically only using biblical language, and we can wrangle over what those biblical words mean, 
No one actually explicitly taught annihilationism until a man named Arnobius, who I'll get to in a minute. But until Arnobius, the only ones who actually explicitly taught on the subject were all universally either eternal conscious torment teachers or teachers in the immortal soul, such as Justin Martyr, Athenagoras, like he mentioned, Irenaeus, who in his Against Heresies actually affirmed the immortality of the soul, specifically in Book 5. I encourage everyone to read that. Tertullian, and so many others that we can get into. But I do want to mention that Ignatius, when he talks about immortality, cannot be referring to the immortality of existing for eternity, because if you actually read his letter to the Ephesians, I believe it is, he says that we gain immortality by taking the Lord's Supper. Meaning immortality is not something you gain by doing something. It's rather something you experience. And that's how us eternal conscious torment uh, teachers would view eternal death and eternal life. It's an experiential thing, not a conditional uh, requisite you have to meet in order to exist forever in heaven or hell. But let's talk about Ar Arnobius for a second. He is the first clear teacher on annihilationism. But frankly, you can keep him as a historical uh support for all I care, because he possibly taught reincarnation, depending on how you view his statements on the subject, either positively or negatively, and against the heathen. Just read book two of Arnobius and ask yourself, is this even a Christian? A man who taught potentially the uh, reincarnation of the dead, for sure polytheism, that there are other lesser gods who exist, for sure was a Gnostic who said that God did not create the physical and the human and the, even the human soul because, well, those are fallen and therefore God didn't create them, which is a Gnostic argument. And then also would have loathed me and Chris being Calvinists. He loathed all forms of predeterminism and frankly was a Pelagian who denied original sin, said that people were morally neutral in their souls and uh, denied the fact that God predestined anything and rather said that it's all up to your free will. And in fact, you could be perfect well, if yeah. you maintain your perfection through the rest of your life. And so frankly, I don't see any evidence in anything Chris said, other than, of course, he claims to be biblical. Of course, I, I, I know he is. He means well. He wants to be biblical and he can fit in with evangelicals, though, frankly, I feel like anybody can. But the fact of the matter is, I do not believe that annihilationists can claim historic support. I do not believe that annihilationists can claim creedal support, especially in Chris's case when he denies the nature of the hypostatic union. And I do not believe that annihilationists can affirm the essentials of the faith in light of how they misdefine the atonement and the eternal judgment. And frankly, if annihilationists failed even one of these tests, then it would be heretical. But not only did it fail one, it failed three of the five tests. It's not creedal, it's not historical, and it's not orthodox, and therefore we have to condemn it as heresy. Thank you, Dr. Peterson, for that rebuttal. Professor Date, you may begin when you start speaking. All right, thank you. First of all, Paul in Romans 2.16 does not say, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus by X, Y, and Z. He simply says that his gospel maintains that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The reality is that people hold all sorts of different views, even within the doctrine of eternal torment, on what that judgment will look like, from people who believe in a literal fiery hell, from people who believe in some sort of a metaphorical separation, to people who believe in reconciliationism, where the lost are submissive to God, but nevertheless are still rebellious and sinful, and on and on it goes. 
Um, if we're going to say that the law, the last judgment has to be uh, so um, identical to what one individual view of that last, last judgment is, or else it's going to be deemed her heretical, then I'm sorry, but Josh is going to have very few Christians to fellowship with. Um, number two, the, his claim is that my view is unrecognizable um, compared to the if the traditional view is a correct interpretation of Scripture, and that's what makes it um, heretical. But but that is a really bad can of worms to open up because there are many 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 texts which are far more recognizable compared to my view than than the doctrine of eternal torment. Tares being burned up in a furnace in Matthew thirteen thirty, Sodom and Gomorrah being reduced to ashes, Jude seven, Second Peter two six, the flood killing millions of people in or hundreds of thousands, whatever it was, Second Peter three five and seven, corpses being eaten up by scavengers scavenging uh, worms and fire in Isaiah 66:24 people dying like by venomous sna uh, uh, snake by venomous snakes in John 3:14 to 16 death the kind of which frees a married married spouse to be able to remarry in Romans 6:23 and 7:2 these and a host of other texts if they are consistent with the doctrine of eternal torment it leads it, it follows logically that my view is in fact recognizable enough even if the doctrine of eternal torment is true um, number three, my opponent's claim is that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is inconsistent with annihilationism. And there are a number of places where Josh simply made factual errors. Number one, he claims that we don't think torment or God's wrath are an essential part of substitutionary atonement. Simply false. Now, I'm not saying Josh is lying, but he certainly hasn't done his research, because vast numbers of us conditionalists affirm that it is the pouring out of God's wrath in hell, and it will be experienced painfully as part of the process by which the wicked are destroyed. So no, we do think that a violent death is necessary. It's part of what, it's, it's what awaits the wicked in hell, and that is indeed what Jesus suffered, even if you think that the wicked will remain alive and immortal forever in hell. Um, he said that uh, John Stott's uh, annihilationism led him to become an inclusivist. Um, that slander. I would be very open to seeing proof that John Stott became an annihilationist, and then because he became an annihilationist, became an inclusivist. I doubt that case will be made. Will be able to be made. What my opponent has just done here is just taken a person who has a view and then has other views he considers heresies, and therefore tries to link them together. But those links don't hold up. Another such example is my opponent's claim that I became a physicalist after I became a conditionalist. I'm on the public record saying that's false. It's the other way around. I started to become persuaded of physicalism before I became convinced of conditionalism, and the two were entirely disconnected from one another. Moreover, countless conditionalists, including Irenaeus himself, are dualists. Dualists who believe in a conscious intermediate state. Uh, my opponent seems to be under the misapprehension that, uh, that physicalism and annihilationism go hand in hand, but I'm sorry, they don't. You could say I'm a heretic if you want to argue that physicalism is heresy, but you don't get to say conditionalism and annihilationism are heresies. They're not, because they don't require and its adherents don't all affirm uh, physicalism. Uh, moreover, the idea that Chalcedon, the Creed of Chalcedon, um, rules out physicalism, if it does, fine, but that doesn't do you any favors in this debate, since this debate isn't about physicalism. But more importantly, the reason why the authors of Chalcedon said that, human ha that, that Jesus had a rational soul One is minute. because they believed that, a human, that human nature is both body and soul. And what they were trying to say was that Jesus was everything that a human was. And that was the, the thing that was violated by Apollinarianism, that Jesus wasn't everything a human is. I believe as a physicalist, that Jesus is everything that a human is. So, so no, my physicalism doesn't violate Chalcedon, but more importantly, this debate isn't about physicalism, so it's a non-starter. That's simply a red herring. Um, 
lastly, he, and, and this isn't to the question of the debate, but he claims that Irenaeus said that we gain immortality through the Lord's Supper, and supposedly that means he wasn't an annihilationist. Well, no, I can gain an inheritance, meaning that I have it awaiting me. And that's how immortality and resurrected life is, is described all throughout the New Testament, as an inheritance, the guarantee of which we have in the seal of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, but which we will receive on the final day. And that's why Jesus says it's on that day that people will enter into eternal life. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that rebuttal round. We're going to move into our open discussion for 30 minutes, and we want to invite the audience for uh, to start asking questions. There are instructions at the top of the live feed for how to format your question so that we know that it is a question as opposed to some random comment. And we'll start taking note of those questions. And if we have repetitive questions, we'll probably condense them down um, and pick the best ones that are framed correctly. So with that, I'm going to start the clock for 30 minutes of open discussion. I'm going to try to stay out of it, but if it gets um, off track or if it lacks clarity or if it gets contentious, I will step in as moderator. So with that, your 30 minutes of opening discussion begins now. Hi, Josh. Why don't you go ahead and lead the direction, the questioning for a bit since you're the one affirming and yeah, maybe at sure. some point I'll switch gears. Sounds good. Um, so, First off, I want to say, if, if I misapprehended which came first, your physicalism and your annihilationism, I, I apologize. The reason why I thought your physicalism came second is because in all your recent videos on physicalism, you admitted that you're still wrestling with it and discussing it, mulling it over, and seemed apprehensive about it. And so I assumed that was an indication that it was a recent development. So I understand. And no, no apology necessary, but I hope that you at least recognize that that defeats one little part, one little claim you made, which is that yeah. conditionalism leads to physicalism. Or not, not that leads to physicalism. That I, I totally recognize that actually you're in the minority. Most conditionalists are uh, uh, dualists. At least within evangelicalism, yeah. Yes. And so I, I recognize that. My example was that it re, it can result if you take an aspect, like for example, it makes sense why annihilationism would become physicalism because it better explains, well, what I thought the soul was immortal. That's what, how most evangelicals are raised. Uh, and so, well, yeah. Although, to be fair, historically, when the church has said that the soul is immortal, they've never meant it will never die. All they take it to mean is that it, that it, it survives natural death. And dualist Christians have no problem with affirming that. And so, I, no, I don't agree with you, and that's fine, we can disagree, but, but I don't agree with you that um, annihilationism makes better sense in physicalism than otherwise. Okay. Uh, get some clarification. You mentioned how you do affirm the penal in the penal substitutionary atonement, which is, I think it is very relevant to annihilationism because it does relate to what Jesus experienced and what the wicked experience in hell. Mm -hmm. um, so you say that you do affirm that they experience the wrath of God in terms of torment. In, in terms of a torturous death, right? Like the one that Jesus experienced on the cross, yes. Um, to put it one way, uh, it's not as if Jesus was punished with torment, you know, that, that he suffered the wrath of God in torment and then separately experienced the wrath of God in dying. It's that his violent, painful death is itself the result of him bearing the wrath of God, at least in my view. I see. So how then would you explain the difference in how Christian martyrs have experienced martyrdom? often with joy and praise and, frankly, welcoming it on, knowing that they've been granted a privilege to die for the faith. How do you reconcile that with Jesus 
basically begging God not to let him die in that way, if it's only death that he experienced. Well, number one, we've already established it wasn't only death he experienced, and so I'm not sure why you pose the question that way. But, but number two, I think you're making a number of mistakes. Number one, you're making the mistake of saying that somehow Jesus was less willing to go to his death than the martyrs in the centuries after him. Um, I see no evidence of that. He was very willing to do it, and he just asked God, if possible, take this cup from me. But then he said, if, but if it be your will, let it be done. Um, meanwhile, we have martyrs in, from the early centuries saying how, in particular, Ignatius, for example, Ignatius was dying to be a uh, a martyr, excuse the pun. But yeah. um, we don't have any record, or we don't have any proof that that was the only emotion they experienced. I mean, if, if you actually think, and if you do fine, I just think you would be foolish if you think this, that the only emotion those martyrs ever experienced was abject joy at the prospect of going to their violent deaths. If that's what you think, I think you're off your rocker. Um, clearly, I, I think it's all, virtually goes without saying that those martyrs, as joyously as they went to their deaths, knowing that it was for their risen savior, who suffered on their behalf and died on their behalf, I'm absolutely sure that they also were deathly afraid of it, experienced tears, um, and, and so on and so forth. And I would be, I, I, I would love to see evidence that that isn't the case, but I suspect you won't be able to provide it. Going back to the nature of the atonement and wrath. So mm. I'm sorry, it, it sounds like you're trying to say both, that yes, Jesus took the wrath of the Father, but the wrath was his death and how he died. Is that a fair way? No, wrath isn't what happens. Wrath is the emotion that bring that causes something to happen. God's wrath is is his his righteous anger towards sin, and Jesus took uh, the role of sin on our behalf, and he bore our sins in our behalf. Um, and, and, and so God's righteous anger was directed at him. What did that anger prompt God to do to what to the father to do to the son? Well, it, it, caught, it prompted the father to put him to a torturous death. That's what I'm saying. Um, to, to a rough analogy, and actually it's not all that rough of one, um, would be to say that when the state exercises judicial wrath or governmental wrath, the wrath of the people against a death row criminal by putting him to death on the electric chair, it's not the wrath is the torment on the chair or the death at thereafter, but rather it's what causes, uh, it's what prompts the government to put the criminal to a violent death. I see. So in your view, there's nothing going on behind the scenes while Jesus is crucified, where he is experiencing a spiritual um, disdain, separation from the, the experiential words that we, eternal kind of torment people would use in how we define death and separation. That's not going on behind the scenes. Um I suspect it was not. In fact, I would say that's dangerously bordering on heresy, because the doctrine well, of the Trinity... Yes. What's that? I, I understand where that's going. Uh, okay. But in terms of the just the the wrath aspect, there's nothing going on behind the scenes occurring to Jesus's spirit while he's on the cross. In your view, well, he's experiencing uh, um, uh, uh, emotional, you know, psychological pain, psycho spiritual pain, if you will, um, and he's experiencing physical pain, all of which is induced by the means by which God is putting him to death. It's all part, all of that is Christ's uh, experience of the wrath of the Father. That's how I would put it. Okay. So when it comes to the, then paralleling that with the final judgment and the wicked, your view of justice is that while they will, because uh, in your response, both responses to James White, you said that the wicked after the resurrection, they're not born again. They're still reprobate. They still hate God. They will continue to sin even after the resurrection. But the punishment for them is 
for their sins, even the ones they commit after the resurrection, is just being put to death, correct? Well, it's, it's the violent execution that brings about their demise, yes. Yes. And so what would your response be to someone who says that, no, the, the requirement for justice is that they be tormented for every sin they commit, and since they never stop sinning, they will never stop being tormented? What would your response to that be? Well, my response would be threefold, uh, and I'll try to be brief because I, I want you to have the time you need. Uh, but number one, the Bible never says that the punishment for sin is torment. It says the punishment for sin, the wages of sin is death. And of course, we can get into what that means. But the point is, at least on at least a surface value reading of that text would suggest the nature of the punishment isn't de- uh, torment, it's death. Ergo, it would follow that, uh, if I'm right anyway, that continued sins in hell wouldn't merit torment, that would merit death, which is what they're headed for anyway. Number two, um, maybe it's only a twofold response. Well, no, it is a threefold. <laughs> Number two, the, the Bible nowhere seems to indicate that the on that, that punishment in hell is for sins committed in hell. At the very best, all that can be leveraged in support of that claim is that somehow it would be logically and 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 in terms of justice consistent for God to punish sins in hell, just like he punishes sins committed prior to the point of hell. Um, but that is just an inference. There isn't anything logically deductive that would require that. And meanwhile, we only have biblical text affirming that it's for sins committed in life. And then the last thing I would say is that if death is the punishment for sin, then any sins committed while the death row criminal is being dragged down to the green mile to the electric chair would be accounted for. Uh, and you heard me respond to James White, So, I'll, but but for the sake of the audience, if you'll let me repeat it, yeah. um, if you have uh, uh, guards dragging a, a death row criminal to the electric chair and he flashes or thrashes and flails and he gets free for a moment and assaults those guards and causes them bodily harm, the, the state doesn't say, oh, okay, we got to drag him back to trial, get him found guilty, sent to prison for a number of years for assault, and then we can kill him. No, they just drag him the rest of the way and kill him. Because if death is the ultimate penalty for sin, then any sins and any number of sins committed uh, up until the point they breathe their last will be accounted for by that punishment. Gentlemen, um, just for the sake of clarity, uh, sure. on behalf of the audience and a bit to myself, uh Dr. Peterson, could you uh, give our, our our professor date somebody give a a brief explanation again why the nature of the punishment Jesus experienced on the cross is relevant to the debate question of whether or not annihilationism is heresy? Oh, well, that's a fantastic question. It, it automatically gets down to the issue of justice, and for us to be justified, as Romans 3, 25 and 26 says, God has to be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Uh, justice has to be satisfied, and so therefore, uh, we all recognize, whether annihilationist or traditional, or whatever you want to call me, that whatever those who uh, go to hell experience, they're going to experience justice for whatever they did in life, or uh, any sins they committed. And the same then has to be true of Jesus. For him to uh, have atoned for sin, he has to satisfy justice on behalf of uh, his people. And so for someone to be forgiven, well, you have to ask yourself, well, what is someone going to endure at the final judgment? If the answer is spiritual suffering under the wrath of the Father, then there has to be spiritual suffering under the wrath of the Father for Jesus' sake in order for him to satisfy justice. He has to take the death you deserve and the wrath you deserve in the traditional view. And so if you say that uh, those in hell do not have to take the wrath of the Father but only die, you also, by extension, are saying Jesus didn't have to take the wrath of the Father, experientially speaking, on the cross to satisfy justice. He only had to physically die and be a martyr, basically. 
So it, it, it rejects the... It, so rejecting the eternal conscious torment position is a rejection of what Christ suffered on the cross in your view, which amounts yeah. to heresy. Yes, it redefines the atonement by... Uh, in the same way as Chris, and Chris would agree with this, he's absolutely right. If someone said Jesus didn't have to physically die, that's heresy, because the wages of sin is death. That's a physical death, and I would also say it's also. I don't like using spiritual death because the spiritual death of Jesus, it, with him going to hell and a whole bunch of nonsense has gone into that. But there also has to be a spiritual experience of Jesus uh, taking the wrath of the Father as well in the traditional view, and so. To change what justice is in eternity is also to change what justice is on the cross. If you change what justice is on the cross, I say you're flirting with heresy. And I think Chris would be Got it. So, well, I, so I would, except as, as I think we've established, or at least, well, as I think I've established, um, there isn't anything that Christ experienced when he was bearing the wrath of God that we think won't await the, the risen wicked. In fact, I would argue, as you know I would argue, because you've watched some of my stuff, that actually it's you who is in, for, in, clo in more danger than I am of denying that what Jesus bore when he bore the wrath of God uh, isn't what the wicked will bear. Because the traditional view, and now maybe you part ways with every single one of your traditionalist forebears, it's possible, but every single one of your traditionalist forebears says that the resurrected lost will be bodily immortal and live physically forever in hell. Muscles moving, you know, uh, lungs expanding and collapse, etc. Well, Jesus, and you even just said it yourself, he bore physical death. Now, whereas the risen wicked will never in the doctrine of eternal torment. Now, I know the typical response, it'll be that, yeah, but, but the wicked do die. Then they're raised. But there's a fundamental, there are two fundamental problems with that. Number one, the righteous die too uh, and are raised. So that doesn't help. But number two, um, where was I going with this? Uh, uh, oh, uh, number two, um, the, the punishment that, D, that Jesus bore or that anybody bears when they bear the death penalty is not the event of dying. Um, I just recently heard about a death row criminal who was killed uh, or, or who had died and then came back to life in, in prison. And so he tried to sue or tried to, you know, um, appeal that he'd already borne the death penalty to which he had been sentenced. Now, they said, heck no, of course not. Right. And the same would be true if he had died on the electric chair and then a few moments later gasped back to life. They wouldn't say, OK, you're free. You died. No, they would fry that sucker again until he's dead because the punishment is no longer having life. So it doesn't matter that the wicked die if they then rise and remain alive and immortal forever. That would be to fail to suffer that which Christ bore on behalf of sinners on the cross. I know you are a partial preterist like myself uh, in Revelation, and so— Well, stop uh, calling yourself a partial preterist, but yes, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I know. I hate having to give that caveat. I'm a preterist. Obviously, you don't think I'm a heretic, right, in terms of my preterism. Amen. But um, So you would probably agree that the first resurrection in Revelation 20 is regeneration, correct? No, no, I don't. No, you would not? Okay, so you don't say, never mind. That's I was going to parallel it with the first resurrection is— Oh, you know, yeah. of course you wouldn't, because uh, physicalism might come into that. Well, no, that's not why. I mean, I, obviously, just for listeners' sake, the re, what you were, I think, going to get at was the argument that people like G.K. Beale have made in his commentary on Revelation that uh, because amillennialists like us, or at least like me, or maybe you're a post-mill, but either way, because— Okay, but because we, it is many of us, not me, think that the first resurrection is spiritual and there, and the second one is physical, it would make sense that the first death being physical would mean that the second death would be spiritual. Um but yeah. I recently did an episode of The Apologetics where I explained that, no, the first resurrection is a physical resurrection, and so I, I would deny that okay. line of reasoning. Okay.
um, getting into the definition of death, because ultimately I think that really is what it ultimately comes down to, uh, is there are a few places in John, John 8, 10, and 11, where Jesus says either the sheep, his people, uh, Christians, that they will ace article I own or whatever form of I own uh, it takes, they will never die, or literally they will not die into the eternity. Can you show me anywhere else that phrase is used where it's only true of the eternal state? Where, Because, for example, I, if I remember right when you talked to James White, you said, well, yeah, that's true that we will never die in eternity. We'll die right now, though. But every time I see that phrase used, I believe without exception, it always refers to something that is true, not just in the eternal state, but right now into eternity, at which point that would undermine annihilationism because it'd be saying they will never die from right now into forever, which clearly we all are going to, unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to physically die, which means he can't be referring to physical death in that context. He'd have to be referring to some form of spiritual death, at which point that would undermine annihilationism, which insists death means physical death, right? Mm. Well, no, I hear I hear your line of reasoning. Firstly, conditionalism and annihilationism don't require that death is univocal, that it only means physical death. Uh, there are many conditionalists and annihilationists who really frustrate me who say, no, there's a spiritual death as well. Um, and that's in fact what what Adam suffered on on the on the on the day that he ate of the fruit. Um so 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 number one, there's that. Number two, um, even if death, uh, if I'm right, and death is literally univocal, that doesn't prevent it from being used metaphorically or proleptically. Um, metaphor being like when in, in in the Karate Kid Part Two, a movie I really love because I'm I love Japanese culture. Um, the the uncle of uh, uh, the, the, that is Miyagi-san's friend, um, he he gets upset at his son or his nephew or whatever, and says to him, "You're you're dead to me," or "Or I'm dead to you now." Now he's not offering some other definition of death. Right. He's just using the language of death as a metaphor for saying, yeah, I'm as if dead to you or the other way around. Likewise, when the when that death row criminal is being dragged down the green mile that we were talking about a moment ago and people in the cells are crying out, dead man walking, they're not offering some alternative definition of death. Uh, they're just saying this person is as good as dead. And if and so I can play I can trade on either of those, those two things and say that a passage like this one is could be using speaking of dying now, but using death as metaphor or prolepsis without the fundamental definition of death being uh, other than ordinary physical death. But as to the question, what is death? Well, just go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Adam becomes a living, bre uh, living being. It's not living soul. That's a mistranslation by the King James Version because all the other animals are called living, living uh, creatures as well. Nefesh Chayah is the Hebrew. It just means living creature. And when Adam becomes a living creature is when a body of dirt is breathed into. And is and so an animated person, an embodied person, is what's alive, and it only makes sense that the that the warning of death would have been understood by Adam as a, a return to the dust and and no longer breathing. And by the way, that is how that plays out in Genesis three, because God says, "To dust you shall return." So we have a little uh, under twelve minutes left, and we've covered the definition of death and eschatology and all sorts of things. So, um. There are other issues um, relevant to the question, is annihilationism heresy, that I think that y'all probably need to move on to with respect to the point of, in Chris's opening statement about creedal affirmations and uh, Dr. Peterson's 
rebuttal to that. So if y'all could get into some of those other points of contention, uh, that would be great. Uh, so you mentioned in the cre- – I didn't bring this on my opening statement, which is why I didn't get into it because I, you know, I try not to introduce new topics on you spontaneously. But uh, in the Athanasian Creed, I believe, you, you quoted it where it says that the a wicked will endure e- – in Latin, it's eternal fire. Which that phrase is used, and, and I believe it's the same phrase that Jerome would go on to use in Latin Vulgate in three places in Matthew 8, Matthew 25, 41, and Jude 1, 6, and 7. Uh, two out of the three, it's referring to the demons. Uh, so, would you do you think that the demons will endure hell forever? Well, hold on a second. I, I mean, I, I just want to say I, I think that's a factual error. Um, there are three phrases, three times in the New Testament that the phrase eternal fire is used. Only one of them is demons, and that's Matthew 25, 41. And there it's not just demons, it's also humans. So it's Matthew 18, 8, and 9 is referring to humans, and Jude 7 is referring to humans as well. But in Jude 7, he's paralleling it as saying that's exactly what happened to the demons. That no, he did not say that's exactly what happened to the demons. Uh, he, he begins it with, he's talking about how in verse 6 that the uh, demons left their proper dwelling and they are kept in eternal chains and gloomy darkness until the, the judgment of the great day, final judgment, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So right, but 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 if you, well, well, hold on, you, I mean, you need to do your research there because what scholars are going to tell you is that the what Jude means by just as is not that they suffered the same fate, but rather, A, they suffered judgment as the, the those angels did, or number two, they sinned as the angels did. Um, I suspect you will find very few scholars, if any, worth their salt, who will tell you that the just as there means that they suffered exactly what angels do. Okay, because the reason I go there is to to see if uh, the biblical, because if the scriptures are using eternal fire to refer to the experience of demons, and if we would agree, I I don't believe you agree. With this. No, I think I think I I think demons will be destroyed as well. So I still am fine with that. Okay, because yeah, because then the eternal fire using the Athanasian Creed, if using the same biblical lingo, if it's yes. automatically good to be eternal but, torment. But if you'll if you'll let me just say a word or two uh, in defense of my reading of Jude seven, would that be okay with you? I'll, I'll keep it to less than thirty seconds. Well, <laughs> sixty seconds. Um, Jude, what scholars recognize that what Jude and the parallel in Second Peter are doing is something that had been done many times in the intertestamental literature, namely give a list of historical examples of what divine judgment looks like, the, the most quintessential, most clear and, yeah. and right. Well, that the, uh, the, these kinds of chains that Jude and Peter use often in that literature feature Sodom and Gomorrah without fail, without exception. Every single one of the times that they do so, they're talking about the historical slaying of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire from heaven. In fact, Peter, as you know, in the parallel to here, says that God reduced them to ashes. So if we are going to insist that the that the angel's fate, must, the demon's fate, must in the end be the same as the eternal fire awaiting the wicked, well, then I stand on solid footing there, I think. I see what you're saying. Um, I don't believe I have anything right off the top of my head right now. I'll keep thinking, but do you have anything you want to— Touch on. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd be interested in how you would respond to one of the things that I said in my rebuttal. I said so. So you're uh, you you echoed something you had written at greater length at, at your church's blog, where you said that my view of hell is unrecognizable compared to what the traditional view maintains that Scripture says. And yet, as I pointed out in my rebuttal, there are many, many, many texts which, if consistent with eternal torment, would require that my view 
also be consistent, at least in terms of recognizability. The burning up of tears, the reduction of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, the death of the people in the flood, the corpses being eaten by fi fire and maggots in Isaiah 66, and so on and so forth. If the doctrine of eternal torment could be said to be in any way recognizable in those texts, then why wouldn't my view be recognizable if the ultimate fate is, in fact, immortality and everlasting life in hell? To that, I would just point out just the parallel, that if we tried to do the same same thing on the other side of the coin with those who are righteous, and and we tried, I, I know it's not the best parallel because the righteous aren't threatened with death, but the reason I say it's unrecognizable is because if we were to do to the righteous what annihilationists do to the wicked for eternity, that would look unrecognizable. If you just told someone, here's what scriptures teach, the wicked go to eternity forever and are tortured for their sins against the holy God, and then said, but this guy over here says, well, actually, he just thinks they cease to exist. That God kills them in a bad way, obviously very unpleasant, but that's it. I think a fair way to describe that was that that's unrecognizable in comparison to what the scriptures teach. Now, I understand what you're saying, that your uh, your your view, you think it's more faithful to the pictures depicting what hell would be. Well, well, just to be clear, that's not the claim I'm making here, although I would in all sorts of other forums, obviously. Yeah. The claim I'm making here is that if eternal torment can be derived or be thought to be consistent with those texts, then you've got the picture of being slain, consumed, burned up, reduced to ashes, being consistent in some in some way with eternal torment. But that sounds exactly like the difference between us here. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I do think one thing that often gets overlooked in this discussion is uh, the nature of Jesus' second coming. Uh, we, when he comes back, it will be just as destructive as the flood in light of 2 Peter 3. And so a lot of the burning up uh, aspects of the judgment, I think, could be deemed kind of before, necessarily. Okay, but would that be true of all the texts that I mentioned? I, have, I would have to... Yeah. How about the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, where he then interprets the parable as saying that when he comes with his angels, he will throw all lawbreakers into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Yes, I would say that as hell, not referring to the conflagration of Jesus and coming. So. Okay, so then Jesus evidently thinks that it's okay to use a picture of tares being burned up to ash by a landowner as a picture for everlasting torment, in your view. So then why couldn't my view be deemed recognizable? And that, and that specific picture parable, yes, I would say it's recognizable. Okay. Uh, when I say it's recognizable, I'm taking, talking big picture. Okay. Um, let me press on the the eternal life analogy you gave. I actually like that analogy, but I actually think it's heretical for different reasons than you. And I'm curious to know what you think here. Number one, Paul, the one reason I think it's heretical is because Paul um, says to Timothy, and you know this as a preterist, that if you, if you that people who teach that the resurrection has already happened are shipwrecking people's faiths with gangrenous heresy. And... Um, and so clearly, if you think that resurrection was in the past and that it was a spiritual resurrection like hyperpreterists do and not a bodily one, then you are a heretic. So that would be why by denying eternal life would be heresy. But moreover, the ecumenical creeds all affirm everlasting life, resurrection unto everlasting life. So, so yeah, I would agree with you that doing what you described with eternal life would make it heretical, but not because they would understand the the Greek phrase, you know, zoe ionion differently than I do than you and I do. It would be because of these other reasons. So, is there any other reason? I mean, can you can you give me any anything other than that example that would substantiate that it's not the creeds and it's not explicit statements in scripture, but it's what you think are implicit implications that are unrecognizable where you could where you could say that that's a good reason for calling them heretical 
Oh, that's a good question. Uh, one I gave in my blog post, but one of the things I told you before the, we started, I had to cut because I realized it's going to take way too long, uh, is Mormonism. Uh, you know, Mormons say that when the resurrection happens, that the righteous, they basically, if you're really righteous, you become your own God the Father, and you get to go create your own little spirit babies and do your own thing with your own planet. And to that, I would say, on what basis do you consider that heresy? Because I hope that everyone listening is like, those guys are whacked out of their minds, heretical for their view, at least on that, on top of many other things. But on what basis? They, there's a resurrection. There's eternal life. What do we condemn them for when they say, you become your own God the Father, create your own little planet, and all that? I'd say they have so perverted the final judgment and what the outcome is that they don't really have a final judgment. because they. And same thing with um, the wicked. For them, the, the wicked are single, right? It's basically the, the main punishment. It's not death. It's not really torment and hell. It's basically you don't get to have a spouse and make spirit babies. Uh, yeah. so I would look at that and say that's a fundamental change to the final judgment to the point where it's heresy. All right. Well, if, for whatever it's worth, I don't think that meets the the stand, the requirement that I offered, and and the reason is because number one, we would not we would call Mormonism heresy for a host of reasons that are explicitly condemned in the creeds and in scripture. Yep. Number two, this specific belief of theirs would violate explicit biblical testimony to the fact that God alone is God, that God alone is God from everlasting to everlasting, and that nobody will marry or be married in the resurrection. Jesus says to the Sadducees, uh, and on and on it goes. I mean, I think there are in fact explicit biblical te texts that have to be denied in order to be a faithful Mormon. Um, sure. And so I, I just don't think that analogy follows either, but I'll leave it up to the audience um, to decide. Um, you said that, and, and I, I, I'm open to you being able to substantiate this, but I'd like to see if you can. You said that John Stott became an inclusivist because he was first annihilationist. Can you... I I believe in this. I, that that is a quote from his Evangelical Essentials, page three twenty-seven, where he describes his uh, optimism that God will save people who've never heard the gospel. And I believe that's a. I could be wrong, and I'll and I'll feel free to admit this. I thought that was one of his later works in his life, and before that, he had never said anything on uh, on, on uh, inclusivism. And so that would be <laughs> natural inference that that resulted from his annihilationism. That that those. Well, were evidence their annihilationism is heresy by just going off the deep end into other heresies as well. Um, have you seen people that have um, embraced one view and then gone on to embrace some other view where there was no connection between the two? Yes. And my, my point is that if someone's a heretic, that it means they're not born again. And if you look at some... It, it's a right, right, but, but hold on, because I've only got a minute left. I, I just want to make clear, if, if you're, you've just said that one view came chronologically after the other, and I'm fine with that, although it is, as you acknowledged, an inference. What I'm asking is, what evidence is there that the one belief is what logically led to the other? In terms, the, the, the connection I would make is that someone who believes a heresy is not born again, and there's a consistent testimony in history from Arnobius and John Stott, and I would gracefully say you, that those who believe heresies tend to go into more heresies. It only makes sense. They're not reborn again. And so if you look at historical trend, those who are annihilationists tend to keep on going into other ones, which is an evidence that, yeah, they're they're not born again. They believe they believe one heresy. Why not go into another? All righty. I think our time's up. Just about, yes. So <laughs> now we're going to move into our closing statements and then into the audience Q&A. So whenever you're ready, Dr. Peterson, you may begin. 
So as I've said multiple times now, I, I would say that the final judgment is a fundamental tenet of the gospel, just as fundamental as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, in the same way we must get Jesus's nature absolutely correct, we also have to be very careful in how we uh, get the final judgment defined. We, can, we are very confined to a lane of how long uh, much we can misdefine it before we've changed it entirely. And so, again, with annihilationism, they have erred because they changed the nature of the final judgment. They insist the wicked will merely be put to death and cease to exist on the last day, when Scripture actually teaches that they will be tormented consciously for eternity. And again, that is a, a redefinition of the final judgment to the point that I would say it is inconsistent with the gospel. It is uh, incompatible and an implicit uh, denial, just as docetism was an implicit denial of the, uh, the gospel by redefining the hypostatic union. I'd also say annihilationism is a redefinition of justice in the atonement because while Chris said, yes, that Jesus did take the wrath of the Father, he consistently limited that experience of taking the wrath of the Father to his death experience, not so much something behind the scenes going on spiritually against Jesus's soul, which is something I would say is essential to the uh, final or to, to the atonement. Because when you see Jesus on the cross and leading up to his atonement, he does not respond in a way that is consistent with what you'd expect your savior and king to do. Because while, yes, there have been Christians who've gone to their death in a uh, fearful manner, there have also been tons of Christians who've gone to their death in a very strong and confident manner. And yes, Jesus did embrace his death. On the other hand, why is he begging the father to take the cup from him if possible? I propose it's not just because he was going to die a, a gruesome death. That wasn't what caused him to be afraid. In the same way, I wouldn't be afraid if I was going to be crucified either. In the same way where I'm in the garden sweating drops of blood and crying and begging God to take it away from me. I would point out that the reason why he is so distraught over the experience that's awaiting him is because he's going to experience something more than just death. Even if it's a horrible death, he was going to experience the unabridged wrath of God the Father that those who will be in hell one day will also experience. And that's important because if he didn't experience that spiritual suffering as well, then there is no atonement because whatever the wicked will suffer experientially in the hell is exactly what Jesus had to suffer experientially on the cross as well. He couldn't just die a physical death. He also had to suffer spiritually under the wrath of the Father. And if Chris is being consistent, if that's true, he would have to say that anyone who denies the suffering of Jesus under the wrath of the Father spiritually is a heretic, because he rightfully pointed out, if you deny that he needed to die physically, you're a heretic. And I would say you're right. If someone denies he needed to suffer spiritually under the wrath of the Father, you're a heretic, because you've misdefined the nature of the atonement. And annihilationism leads into that, because annihilationism does not think that uh, suffering under the wrath of the Father for every sin you commit now and in the future is part of justice. I would say that they have misdefined justice and the atonement. But not only is it heresy to affirm the annihilation of the wicked at the final judgment and to change the nature of the atonement, I would say it's also for many of the heresies that annihilationists affirm in their history. Arnobius was a polytheistic Pelagian Gnostic. John Stott was an inclusivist. I do honestly believe physicalism is a heresy. And I don't think it's a coincidence that annihilationists consistently drift off into other heresies. I believe it is an evidence that they are not born again. 
Now, frankly, I just want to admit, I would love to be wrong about this subject. I love for uh, annihilationists to not be heretics. I'd love to find out that Chris will be in heaven with me for all of eternity. One minute. Uh, him and extraordinarily similar doctrinally. We're both confession confessionally 1689 Reformed Baptists. We're even a preterist, not partial preterists. We're both preterists. We, I've rooted for him so many times on so many other debates, like on the deity of Christ and Calvinism. I'd love to find out that he is, in fact, a brother of mine, but I can't forsake gospel convictions in order to make that happen. And I don't want to necessarily be known as some uh, heresy hunter, some apologist for hell, and that I can't fellowship with anyone, which is what Chris said is a, a possible threat if I get too specific on the nature of the final judgment. Far from it. That's the opposite of what I want to be. I'd like to be able to extend the right hand of fellowship to anyone who affirms the gospel. But they have to affirm all the explicit and the implicit aspects of the gospel as handed down to us by the gospel. So while not wanting to be a heresy hunter, handed down by the apostles, while not wanting to be a heresy hunter, I have to stay faithful to the gospel. And that includes its explicit and implicit doctrines. That includes the final judgment, which I believe annihilationists misdefine, and that includes the final or the atonement of Christ, which includes the suffering under the wrath of the Father spiritually. I propose that it is not creedal, apostolic, or orthodox, which means it must be heresy. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Peterson. Um, Professor Date, he went about 25 seconds over, so I'm going to allot you that time if you would like it. So you may begin when you're ready. All right. Um, I want to begin, first of all, by uh, sincerely thanking Josh for his uh, conduct, his demeanor, both here during the debate and prior to it. I, I, I think it's um, not a little ironic that somebody who thinks that he that I will go to hell, provided I continue to believe what I do, and I'm not a brother, uh, has treated me better than many of the people who claim I'm a brother and yet uh, treat me otherwise in debate. So, Josh, with the utmost sincerity, I very much enjoyed our interactions here prior to this and hopefully, maybe at some point in the future, if I can persuade you that I'm not a dirty, rotten heretic, we can we can enjoy each other's company on other issues. Um, let me let me remind viewers of the positive case I made before I comment briefly on some of the other claims that were made. Number one, it, the, uh, the 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 reason why conditionalists believe in conditionalism is because they think they see it clearly taught in Scripture. Um, this is not a view that results from emotionalism, sentimentality, philosophy, or anything like that. Even if conditionalists might begin to start to rethink hell because of those things, um, which wasn't the case with me and with many others. Nevertheless, those who do are ultimately convinced because they see Scripture clearly teaching it. Number two, contrary to the claims of my opponent, and this was demonstrated during the debate, this conditionalism is not inconsistent with the essentials of the faith. It is consistent with them. The most that my opponent was able to say was that physicalism is inconsistent with the essentials of the faith, um, and that's fine. He could think I'm a heretic for being a physicalist, but he can't for being a conditionalist because it is, in fact, consistent with the essentials of the faith. And as I'll mention in a moment, I actually am concerned about my opponent's own belief about the wrath of God being experienced by Christ on the cross. I think that's in far greater danger of violating the essentials. Number three, the the my view does enjoy historic pedigree. My opponent claimed that the church fathers I cited were simply quoting biblical language, but that's actually not true. Uh, Clement of Rome, when he says that life and immortality is the blessed and wonderful gift given to the church, he's not simply repeating biblical language. He's explicitly saying that life and immortality 
immortality are gifts given to the church when merely 70 years later, Tatian and Athenagoras are saying, no, everybody will receive life and immortality, but a bad one. Moreover, when Clement, says, when Clement of Rome says that uh, righteous conduct is, is, is open to the attainment of life, he uses the, the noun zoe, and that noun and the corresponding verb zao are used throughout the epistle to refer to ordinary embodied life. Clement taught my view. The same is true of Ignatius. When he said that the Lord breathed immortality into his church, he's not simply quoting biblical language. He is explicitly saying that it's the church into which the immortality is breathed, not all of humankind, when only 70 years later, Athenagoras and Tatian start saying otherwise. Moreover, Ignatius is the one who explicitly says that were God to reward us according to our works, we would cease to be. He says that those who deny the physical resurrection of Christ should do otherwise so that they too could rise. So he's explicitly denying that the resurrected, that the wicked will either rise at all or at the very least remain risen. He taught my view. The epistle of Barnabas, like I said, was not merely regurgitating biblical language when he says that the wicked will be destroyed with his works. Uh, he's explicitly using a verb that he's just used to refer to the death of Christ. The Didache, again, life and death, Zoe, Zao, uses those, those words all throughout the Didache for just ordinary embodied life. And Irenaeus is explicit. The wicked deprives himself of continuance and length of days forever and ever. Yes, he was a dualist. Yes, he believed in the immortality of the soul in the sense that it goes on existing after death, but he also believe that God would eventually deprive the lost of ongoing existence forever and ever. So my view is, in fact, uh, does enjoy historical pedigree, much, in fact, older pedigree than my opponent's view, and moreover, um, it, it, well before Arnobius. And I'll remind viewers that despite Arnobius's many problems, he was nevertheless considered a respected church father. Number four, my view is consistent with all the early ecumenical creeds. Number five, it's consistent with evangelical statements of faith. So this view, as far my case, as far as I can tell, has gone um, unscathed by my opponent. Meanwhile, my opponent, and here I'm going to turn to his case, said that Romans 2.16 makes the final judgment part of the gospel, but that's simply, a, um, that's simply inaccurate. All Paul says is, according to his gospel, is that God God will judge the secrets uh, of men by Christ Jesus. That does not rule out my view. Moreover, even if it did say that the nature of the gospel was, uh, nature of judgment was part of the gospel, we established that my view is no more unrecognizable compared to the traditional view than the traditional view is to the many texts from which it claims to find support. The, the burning up of tares, the burning up of Sodom and Gomorrah, the killing of the uh, antediluvians in the flood, and so on and so forth. The gaff, the, 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 the chasm between those texts and my opponent's view is no no less than the chasm between my view and eternal torment. Ergo, my opponent's case fails. Um, as Now, as for the thing that I said makes my opponent actually in greater danger of violating Christology, he is saying that in some way, shape, or form, Christ was spiritually separated from the Father in the way that, that the wicked in hell will be. But that is a violation of the relationship between Father and Son, which is inherent, innate, to the ontological trinity. Um, that is a much greater danger of heresy than my view. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Professor Date, for that closing statement. I want to thank you both for a civil and exciting debate uh, on, a, on such a contentious topic. Dr. Peterson, uh, as a, on a personal note, I do want to say that for your first debate, I think that you did an outstanding job. And I want to echo Chris's sentiment that uh, having been called a heretic uh, in a formal debate myself, I wish that it would have been as uh, kind and friendly as the way you accused Chris of being a heretic. So, Amen. so with, 
So with that, uh, we're going to enter in our 20 minutes of Q&A. Um, the questions will be to either one or both of you. Uh, to the one it is addressed, you answer first, and I will give the other debater an opportunity to respond if they so choose. So with Sounds that, let's, let's go ahead with the first question is from Greg Chesser for Josh. Should Jesus's disciples fear a God who can destroy both the body and the soul of the wicked in hell or a God who can torture both the body and soul of the wicked in hell? That just gets down into the fundamental uh, debate between annihilationism and the traditional view as a definition of terms. And if you come at it with uh, preconceived notions that people are able to be destroyed, that, that the resurrected body is not one that will be able to endure and be tormented. And if you see the second death as being one of actual death, death of the body and cessation of existence rather than the experiential death, that is described in scripture, then yes, I could see how you'd be like, well, destruction means destruction. That's not coming at it from a biblical worldview in terms of the nature of destruction, the nature of death, the nature of, uh, I forget how he says it in Thessalonians, where they are at, separated from the presence of God. That's not a euphemism for death. That is an experiential statement on the subject is how I would respond to that. Chris, would you like to follow up? Um, I will just say that, number one, the, the, the Greek word that Jesus uses in Matthew 10, 28, apollomy, in the way that it's used there, in the act of voice transitively to describe what one person does to another, is consistently used throughout the Synoptic Gospels to mean what Josh just called actual, actual death, namely physical death, the slaying of people. Um, and as for eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, the Greek preposition apa just means from. It's eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord, like what happens when you blow a ship from the water or whatever. But even if you want to take the more... The away from kind of thing. There's nothing there about ongoing conscious experience. It's it's if you if you if, if the if the judge sentences a death row criminal to death and says get out of my courtroom and they take him the, and he's supposed to be experience eternal destruction away from the courtroom, they'll take him and go kill him. He doesn't have to go on experiencing something outside of that courtroom just because it says away from. So I would say that the 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 texts. I still think that his my opponent's view is inconsistent with both Matthew 10:28 and Second Thessalonians. Online. All right. Our next question comes from Phil Geisler, and it's for someone who's not participating in the debate tonight. It's for Christ, but I'm guessing that he made <laughs> the same mistake that I made in our private message when I, too, typed out Christ instead of Chris. So I'm not going to make much of that because I did the same thing today, did I not, fellas? So I, those typos happen all the time, or at least to me and Phil. I, I see it all the yep. time. <laughs> so the question is for Chris, I'm hoping. <laughs> Please address Revelation 20.10 concerning they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Is this symbolic or literal? It is symbolic, um, and only the most uh, hermeneutically illiterate dispensationalists will say it's literal. Um, they're the ones who are saying that demon, you know, people, uh, demons coming up out of the pit with, with tails like scorpions is John's attempt to describe Black Hawk helicopters. No, that's foolish. It's simply untrue. This kind of vision goes back to Joseph interpreting the dream of Pharaoh with seven healthy cows coming up out of the Nile and seven sick cows coming up after the Nile. When Joseph interprets it, he says, the seven cows 
are seven years. In other words, the thing you saw in the vision is this in reality. It symbolizes this in reality. So when when the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are seen by John tormented forever and ever in the lake of fire, that's what's taking place in the vision. We have to ask ourselves, what does that symbolize in reality? Well, death and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire as well. And back in Revelation 6, death is the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, and Hades is his squire following after him. So they are every bit as much conscious beings in the vision as the devil, the beast, and the false prophet and, and resurrected lost people. But what does their fate in the fire symbolize? Well, the few verses later, Revelation 21.4, Hathanatas uk estai eti, death shall be no more. First Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, katargeo, meaning to cause to cease to exist. Or Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death forever. You see, the throwing of things into the lake of fire symbolizes the annihilation of death itself. The existential threat of death will no longer be. And so my contention, and we could spend a lot more time on this, but uh, my contention is that, yes, things are depicted as eternally tormented in that vision. But the interpretation of that symbolism um, is very clearly my view. All right. Dr. Peterson, would you like to follow up on that? Yeah, just real briefly, uh, as a preterist myself, I would point to the parallels in Revelation 20 of the first resurrection, the second resurrection, and then logic, the first death and the second death, that the first resurrection, I'd be interested, I, I have not yet to hear uh, Chris's exegesis of the beginning of Revelation 20, so I'd be interested in reading that or hearing it sometime um, but taking the consistent way, I believe, in, in terms of seeing the first resurrection as a spiritual resurrection uh, that happens at regeneration, which I'd be curious to see what Chris views regeneration as as a physicalist. But that's another time. The first resurrection is spiritual. The second resurrection is physical. And the first death is physical, which means the second death is spiritual, which means that is the one of experience where the wicked are tormented, just as it says. Because while, yes, Revelation is full of uh, depictions of symbolic things. One thing that uh, Chris and I would agree on is actually that most, other than the thousand years, which means a long time, the timeframes in Revelation are actually pretty accurate in terms of the first Jewish Roman war. And so I would say, why does he get fast and loose by saying, well, thousand years can mean a long time that we're in in the church age, which I agree with, and then suddenly say, and they'll, they'll be tormented for eternity, but actually that actually just means they're thrown into the lake of fire, and that's it. All right. The next question comes from 1x1x1. It says, at Trinity Radio, question for Chris Date. How is it just that committing a finite sin end in eternal death? Uh, well, one possibility would be the argument invented by Anselm a thousand years after Christ, which is that by sinning even once against an infinitely holy God, one merits an infinite penalty. Of course, Anselm and traditionalists after him, wrongly assuming the Bible teaches eternal torment, have said if have used that as an explanation for why. Um, people would merit an infinite penalty, and that would follow from that, that it's infinite torment, it's everlasting torment. But if instead you accept the biblical testimony that the final, that the wages of sin is death, the likes of which Christ died, um, then everlasting death would be the infinite penalty merited by a single sin. Um, another possibility is that uh, the, the the penalty is indeed everlasting, but the penalty doesn't isn't continuously meted out in hell. That everlasting penalty is secured 
by ending the life of the wicked. And in order for somebody to be no longer deserving of death, they would have to do or believe something, they would have to repent or accept faith or, or whatever to be un, to be removed from that state, but there will by that point be nobody that exists to do that because they will have been destroyed in both body and soul. So I, I think there are a number of different ways that you can go at it. Um, I'm assuming this question is coming from a universalist since it would be um, equally uh, directed at my opponent. Right. So, Dr. Peterson, would you like to respond? Well, I would just want to encourage people that when we discuss why, even like for us traditionalists, when we explain why hell is eternal, I encourage people to not use Anselm's argument. Uh, I think it's actually true. I, I think it's logical, but it's not biblical. I, As I said in the debate today, the reason why hell is eternal is because, as Chris agrees with, when the, the wicked are resurrected, they will not be born again suddenly. They will be just as wicked as they've always been. And they will continue to gnash their teeth at God. And gnash your teeth in Scripture, especially when it's defined in the Old Testament, is without exception referring to hatred. It's a, an emotional despisement of somebody that you are opposed to. And when Jesus says that hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's why it's eternal. Because what do the wicked do in hell? They gnash their teeth at God. They hate God. And so God punishes them for hating him. And then they hate him while he punishes him them. And then he punishes them again. And it goes on, rinse and repeats for all of eternity. That's how I would encourage people to explain why hell is eternal, because they're getting exactly what they deserve. And, you know, I, I understand why he says it, but I don't agree that uh, hell is only punishment for the things done in the body. Uh, one, uh, Satan doesn't have a body and he's punished forever, which I know you it's not the point you were making when you said done in the body, done in this life. I know what you mean. But God's justice can't be set aside. It's not as if he suddenly decides, I'm no longer going to be just and punish sin because it was committed at a specific time. He will continue to punish sin forever when they gnash their teeth at him, and that's why hell's eternal. That's the clarification I would give and encouragement I would give to uh, the traditionalists to explain hell that way. Okay. Uh, next question, I think, is also for uh, Chris Dates. Oh, we have a question. Okay, for Josh. Should Jesus' disciples fear a God? Well, that's, we've already had that question. Yeah, the, yeah, the Breuer twins. Yeah. Most of the questions here are, are going to be, looks like, for Chris. So, Dr. I Peterson, I am, I, am, I am sorry about that, but it also means you get the final word on most of these questions. So, Amen, I'll take uh, it. Yeah. Chris Date, you appealed to lots of passages about our physical bodies and annihilationism, Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., but do you have any evidence for our souls being annihilated? Yeah, uh, I want to preface my answer, though, with this debate isn't about whether my view is true. It's about whether my view is heretical if it's not true. So, but nevertheless, I want to respect the questioner's question. Uh, Matthew 10, 28 is the go-to place. It's not the only reason for thinking it. But there Jesus says that God, and, and you know, sometimes people claim that because what, what Jesus says is that God is able, that therefore it's just what he could do, not what he will. But the parallel in Luke is, has Luke... Um, saying this, uh, capturing the same thing that Jesus said, but as uh, cast into Gehenna. Uh, 
So whatever Jesus said is equally well captured by Matthew's rendition and Luke's rendition. So can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna means he will, because Luke characterizes that as cast into Gehenna, which the text of Scripture clearly says he will do. So that solution doesn't work. So what Jesus says is that God can and will destroy Apollomy, both body and soul, in Gehenna. Now this is important because the word Apollomy there can, in some places, refer to ruination or lose, being lost or wasted, but in all of those places it either does not refer to an animate creature, let alone a human being, or it's in what Greek linguists call the passive or middle voice, or intransitively, to de- not to describe what one personal agent does to another, but just what happens to a person. And that that's none of those are what's going on in Matthew 10.28. Jesus uses the word in the same way that Matthew uses and Luke uses to say that the, that Herod wanted to Apollomy, destroy the baby Jesus. I'm sorry, but Herod did not want to ruin, waste, or lose, or separate the baby Jesus. He wanted to kill him. And the same is true of the Pharisees wanting to Apollomy, destroy the adult Jesus. They wanted to kill him. They didn't want to ruin, waste, or lose him. So if the body will be slain in hell, which is what Jesus says will happen, and is contrary to my opponent's view, um, the same thing that is true of of a slain body will be true of a slain soul. Well, what is true of a slain body? It's inert, it's inactive, it's inanimate, it's lifeless, it's motionless. But consider what the soul is classically. The soul is pure consciousness. It's an immaterial, simple substance. If you render that inert, inanimate, inactive, lifeless, motionless, you end up with annihilation. So that is one text, and there are others I could go to, but I I want to be sensitive to how much time I've already taken. Right. So, Dr. Peterson, if you'd like to follow up with an equally long-winded explanation of what you believe about this, feel free to go ahead. Mine's based on a one-sentence zinger. I'd I'd love to know what you even do with Matthew there, because you think that what God will do to uh, the wicked is what humans will do to, like, for example, if uh, we execute a person today. Uh, isn't that exactly what God's going to do in the final judgment? Because you, you're a physicalist and don't think that there is a, an extra thing that God can do to the soul. Uh, so I don't know what you would do with that in terms of your physicalism, which I'd be I'd be curious. And that so would be I, a great thing to hash out in round two sometime <laughs> in the future. But for now we're going to go on to the <laughs> next question. Uh, and, and by the way, um, as it happens in most debates that I've ever seen ever, um, people from the audience typically are going to ask the debaters questions about all kinds of things, not necessarily <laughs> related to the thing. And that's fine because this is one of the few opportunities that they get to engage with people of you guys' caliber and want to hear what you have to say on that. So we're going to go ahead and and not try to filter the questions too much because, number one, there's not that many related to the debate topic. And two, because people want to hear from you guys. So... Um, Susan Morales asks, so what happens to unbelievers before being annihilated under Chris's view? Well, since this debate is about conditionalism, not physicalism, um, I'm assuming she's talking about what will happen to the wicked between resurrection and death. Um, She can clarify in the chat if she wants to know prior to that, but then we'll be off topic. Well, what I think will happen is they will rise, they will face judgment, they will um, face the the, the God, many of of whom have denied his very existence, and they will will stand before him and face their own shame, and even, I'm sorry, but the most rebellious and impenitent of sinners standing before the glorious um, and 
and very clearly existent at that point, God, um, they will not be perfectly happy to um, to have been uh, found guilty of their many sins. Uh, so they will experience shame. And by the way, that's explicitly what the text of Scripture says anyway. Daniel 12, 2, they will be, rise to shame and everlasting contempt, which, by the way, is a whole other topic, so I won't cover that here. So they will, they will experience shame. Um, like the likes of which caused Judas, for example, to kill himself. And then they will um, face the realization that they will forever be remembered in contempt by the righteous and by God himself. That's where the everlasting contempt comes in. Um, and so they will, and so many of them, like, like Hitler, will forever be remembered as a Hitler, a Judas Iscariot, or whatever. And whatever people want to pretend is the case, we all care how we're remembered after we're gone. And anybody who says otherwise is simply lying. Uh, or, or they're mentally disabled. Or like like uh, uh, they're crazy. Um, it's not mentally stable to not care how people remember you after you're gone. And after all of that, they will then be violently, painfully executed. How long that will take, I don't know. It could take hours like Christ. It could take a few moments like Sodom and Gomorrah. But it will be a violent, painful death. And then, as I said, forever they will be remembered in abject contempt, or at least the worst of sinners will be. All right, Dr. Peterson. Uh, take all that and switch out. They will be violently and painfully killed and insert punished forever that's 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 it but i do i i, I bet you she is also getting at the intermediate state in that question as well yeah. uh but that's a whole nother can of worms to get into with chris as well all right so so just uh to follow up if i may ask a question of you uh dr peterson so uh -huh. chris described quite vividly the kind of execution being violent and painful so just on your personal view of eternal conscious torment, do you, how do you perceive that torment? Do you think that it will be violent and painful, literal fire? Do you think it'll be just uh, psychological anguish? Or how would you characterize that punishment? Or do you not have a particular view? I would use biblical language recognizing the current physical limitations on accomplishing that. For example, burned in fire, I have no problem using that language, and they will be burned in fire. How they keep going, early church fathers said that somehow the way God makes their bodies, they're not consumed. They just experience the pain. Or same thing with the, the worm that never dies, Isaiah 66. I have no problem using the biblical language and saying, but I don't have the current physical explanation of how that's possible. Okay. Dr. or Professor Date. <laughs> I'm not Dr. Date yet, but I do hope to get yeah. there someday. Um, right. Yeah, I'll just say two things very as briefly as I can. Number one, um, it seems to me that whatever Dr. Peterson thinks will be what awaits the wicked in hell in their everlasting torment, it will be substantially different from what many other traditionalists think. And so I'd be curious at some point to know if he would call them heretics as well, because their view of eternal torment is uh, unrecognizable compared to his own. Um, but secondly, I would say that um, there, I had a second thought. Remind me what the question was. It was, oh, oh yeah. So remember that one of the things that the doctrine of eternal torment typically entails is everlasting separation from the Father, relational separation. And that is indeed thought to be one of the worst aspects of that everlasting torment. And all I would say is that if you think that, and maybe maybe Dr. Peterson doesn't, but it seemed like he was getting pretty close to it when he talked about the soul as, as a, uh, the soul of Jesus experiencing wrath of God as if somehow I deny that. It's the only way I think you could possibly say I deny that is if you go so far as to say he experienced relational separation from the Father, the likes of which the wicked will be tormented 
to buy for all eternity. But as soon as you do that, well, then I think you run into a real problem when it comes to the Trinity because of the relational separation from Father and Son. Um, remember, the, the Church Fathers defined person, many of them, as simply the relation the relationship between father and son, the relation between son and spirit, etc. So, if you think that relation was viol- was was separated by, uh, by uh, when Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross, you have rendered the Trinity a binity. So, I would just encourage people to be careful not to at least go that far, whether or not my opponent does. All right, we only have a little bit of time left in the Q and A, so this will probably be our last question, unless there are more. And there, I'm being informed by our. Our, our technician, uh, if y'all would, my lowly technician who keeps interrupting me, uh, my lowly technician is also my boss, Dr. Braxton Hunter, but, but um, he says there are actually a lot more questions. And so I was wondering, um, does this need to be the last question for either of you gentlemen, or do y'all uh, want to keep going maybe perhaps 10 more minutes and then- Sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll go as long as you guys want. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm good. Okay. So this is from Richard Neal at Trinity Radio. So I'm going to address this to both, and I'm going to give uh, Dr. Peterson a chance to go first, since sure. he usually doesn't get a chance. So uh, starting with you, Dr. <laughs> Peterson, we know that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So what did Jesus mean by his declaration in Matthew 10, 15? Is that the same... Uh, and add Matthew eleven twenty four. Oh, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment. Yeah, the land if of you Sodom need a second to look at that up. Um, yeah, 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 okay. okay. It's, when, it's when he's denouncing, uh, you know, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. That it'll, it'll be more tolerable on the day for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it gets into one of the most common uh, objections I've heard addressed to annihilationists is the degrees of punishment objection, which I think for annihilationists, uh, Chris does a pretty good job explaining how there is degree of punishment for uh, even annihilationists. But at the same time, in the grand scheme of things, when you look at how, for example, it says that the wicked will be destroyed in fire, Jude 1, or that, the, uh, that Sodom was destroyed in fire in Jude 1, 7, and how it correlates that with uh, the final judgment. It is interesting that nowhere uh, is it taught, it's, it's inferred by Chris out of necessity, nowhere is it taught that the types of death vary in severity or anything like that, the final judgment. In fact, all the deaths, or the, all the experiences, what he would call deaths, the final judgment, are usually almost always uh, lumped together as being the same kind. They'll be destroyed like Sodom. They'll be destroyed like at the flood. There was no variation of death with those. It, it was, you're burned alive, you're drowned alive. And so I, I, I think that the point is uh, the experience aspect of it, not so much just the finality of how you died. I don't know if exactly what the, uh, the question is getting at, but that's, that's all I took out of it. All right. Professor Date? Well, two thoughts, or maybe more as I continue talking, many of which I'll probably forget. Number one, um, in to use the phrase the grand scheme of things, it seems to me that in the grand scheme of things, an eternity of torment is an eternity of torment is an eternity of torment. I don't care if it's Chinese water torture with a drop hitting your forehead every second for all eternity or whether it's abject burning in fire. Because I'll tell you what, the person who's only experiencing a drop of water on his forehead is going to be able to be able to experience a far greater degree of psycho-spiritual suffering than the person who is whose mind is completely consumed by the fact 
fact that he or she is suffering um, the literal flames forever. So the reality is degrees of punishment, I think, in the grand scheme of things, end up fading into oblivion on the doctrine of eternal torment if we're going to go that route. Um, but the second thought I'll say is just that, look, I'm not the one who, number one, uses the examples of the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, tears being burned up, which, by the way, don't experience anything at all, uh, and so on and so forth. I'm not the one who uses those as pictures for final judgment. Um, and so all I'm saying is that those, what are all those examples of? Destruction and death. That's that's oh. simple as that. And number two, the very text you mentioned, Matthew 10, 15, says it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. When? On the day of judgment. Not for all eternity. So right there and in every other place you might derive degrees of punishment, it seems as if those degrees are meted out on the day, not over eternity. All right. This is a question for Dr. Peterson from Nathan Nicholson. How does penal substitutionary atonement not fit better with annihilationism when Christ suffered and died and didn't suffer for all eternity? Because uh, I'd be careful how far you take that. When you have Jesus dying there, uh, if you're going to be an annihilationist and say Jesus died in the annihilation, if you're going to be consistent, you have to say he had died in the annihilated sense. Uh, now, if you are a physicalist, and this is something I wish we could have gotten into, but that wasn't the topic of the debate, um, I'd be very curious to see how Jesus maintained his hypostatic union in Chris's view in his death, because his death was only a, uh, his humanity was only a physical body in his view, just as all of humanity is just a bunch of physical bodies. But uh, annihilationism has the issue of uh, how did Jesus actually take what we deserve? Because if what we deserve is for the average annihilationist, the annihilation of the soul and the death of the body, well, either you think Jesus's soul was annihilated during his intermediate state, at which point now he is no longer hypostatically unified with his human nature, or you think that all of Jesus was annihilated, at which point now the Trinity is re reduced to a binity. So I think the issue of uh, how Jesus actually took what we deserve is uh, a bigger issue for annihilationists, because I can say that Jesus, as God, suffered what we deserve to suffer in his six hours on the cross. That is what he what we deserve. He's God in the same way that his experience is enough to forgive an infinite amount of people. If God wanted to save everybody, it was good enough to save however many he wants, even though he's one person. In the same way, his six hours of suffering is equivalent to, as the timeless God, an eternity of suffering in terms of the uh, horror of the experience. Whereas the annihilationists have to explain, well, if the punishment is annihilation of the body and soul, either Jesus was annihilated body and soul and he's not hypostatically unified anymore, or he was uh, annihilated body and divinity, at which point you reduce the Trinity to a binity. I think that issue comes around to bite the uh, annihilationist even more than the traditionalist. All right. Professor Date. So number one, uh, it's just simply factually untrue that the uh, that the that it comes back to bite us more than my opponent because it's my opponent who explicitly has said in the course of this conversation that the physical death of Christ was part of a substitutionary work, and meanwhile he denies that the resurrected will, will ever die. Moreover, I will add that while one can say that what Jesus the the what what his atoning work substitutionary atoning work consisted in was his torment on the cross. While one can say that, the explicit and repeated testimony, uh, Jesus, Jesus died for 
sinners. That word for there translates Greek prepositions that have to do with substitution. The Bible is what says he died for us. That's not what I say. Well, I mean, I do, but only because the Bible says it first. Um, but but as to the issue of whether or not my view suffers any... Pro oh, and I'll add one more thing. If one goes in the direction that, that Dr. Peterson began to, to say that it's the the infinite value of Christ's divine person that means his hours of suffering on the cross can be the equivalent in value of the eternity of torment awaiting the risen lost, that means he exhausted it up until the time he breathed his last. But he should have been let down off the cross at that point then. No, his death was his substitutionary work, or at least was a critically vital, important uh, part of it. And it's the very thing that my opponent thinks will never happen to the risen lost. The last thing I'll say is just that the reason why this isn't a problem for, for, for conditionalists is because our view is not that the wages of sin is annihilation of body and soul. Our view is that the wages of sin is death. Jesus suffered that. The privation of the, the privation, the cessation and ongoing privation of his life. He suffered that. Whether the fact that his human soul continued to exist, if in fact dualism is true, um, doesn't change the fact that he suffered death, the very same death that the risen wicked will. Now, yes, their bodies will be destroyed too, and we could talk about why, but all I've contended, all that conditionalists have to contend is that the wages of sin is death, and that while two people might experience something after death differently than the other, it doesn't change the fact that they both suffer the same penalty. All right, this is from Thank You, Jesus. Question for Dr. Peterson. To me, annihilation or ECT are both terrible judgments. Which seems worse to you? Uh, well, I've heard Chris say before that uh, there were plenty of Greek scholars, and, and there were, who, who they actually were more terrified of the concept of, of annihilation than they were of torment. However, I would point to Revelation 9, which in my view, the five months of suffering uh, there refers to the uh, starvation Jews during the five-month siege of Jerusalem. But regardless of how you want to define that, the people there said that they long for death. No exceptions. Those who experienced the famine and the disease and the infighting of the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 wished they could die. And... That's only after five months of starvation, which is horrible, but I think hell will be worse than that. And so I would say torment is a far worse experience because if people were begging to die and have it stop after five months of uh, starvation, I think an eternity of whatever God has in store for them uh, is far worse than that. They'll yeah, long so, for death, They'll long yeah, for so annihilation. This question is more of a subjective preference than it is any way to haggle out uh, objectively. Yeah. So... Day, well, what is worse to you? Well, Dr. Pritchett, and I want to argue that perhaps you're wrong. Um, okay. You said it's a subjective thing, and and to and to the extent which one do do Dr. Pritchett or sorry, Dr. Peterson and I find more terrifying, that is subjective. But what about what's objective? Um, historically, Christians have said that bare existence is an innate good. Um, God is the self-existence one, and he is pure goodness, and any evil is a privation to one degree or another of 
existence of goodness. So objectively speaking, which is worse, being kept not just in existence, but in existence, but embodied and alive for all eternity, or being robbed of even those goods? Objectively, I think annihilation is worse. Subjectively, as has already been noted, this is a subjective thing, and some people feel differently. I, for one reason or another, am in the uh, think similarly to Plutarch and Augustine, both of whom said that annihilation is a far more terrifying fate. And I recognize that that seems bizarre to people, and I don't know what to tell you, except that that's just the fact. That it's just the fact that you've got to contend with. But I'll tell you this: um, when people don't. Want, when people would rather die than keep on going tormented, it's because they are in the midst of prolonged abject torment. But when we're talking about what is likely to be more terrifying to people that are being presented with the gospel, we're not typically talking about people who are in abject torment that has been prolonged. We're talking to people who are not facing that thing. And universal human experience is that from, on a day-to-day -day basis, we are terrified of death and we fight tooth and nail to, to not die. Like that hiker who got stuck in the mountains in, uh, in, of, of Arizona or whatever and cut his arm off because he had to free himself to get to safety. <laughs> right now, we have the option to tap into that natural human fear of death that people have and say, you don't have to have your death be the end of the story. You can rise unto everlasting life. I can say that. It's a question whether or not my opponent can. Yeah, we don't actually disagree on whether or not you can determine if one is objectively worse than the other okay. independently, but you cannot determine which is objectively worse to whatever seems to you, which is what I All meant. right. <laughs> Accepted. I, I, I concede. All right. Next question is from Beowulf. If this is for Professor Date, if Jesus's death was simply physical and this was enough to atone for all who believe then why must those who die in this life have to die a second time after the resurrection? That's Wouldn't they have already not... paid for their sins? Yeah, well, the answer is because it's not the event of dying. Remember what I said earlier, when the state executes somebody on the electric chair, if they come back to life a few seconds later, nobody except for the criminal who's desperate to save his life is going to say, uh, hey, I've already suffered the penalty, let me go. No, the state and everybody else says no, to flip that switch again and kill him because the punishment isn't dying, the punishment is being dead. Jesus suffered that, um, and, and now now we righteous will, will die as well, but the thing is, is that not all, not the same experience isn't necessarily punishment. If two people are in prison awaiting trial uh, for the same crime, and let's say they're in, in jail for six months, and then they come out, they go to trial, and one is found guilty of a 20-year sentence, uh, and the other one is, is, is innocent and set free. The person who is found guilty, his six months in jail will be counted toward his 20-year sentence. But the person who was in prison for six months and then declared innocent was never punished at all. So the fact that the righteous die, but then come back to life and live on forever does not mean that they've suffered a punitive death. But the wicked return to their punitive death, they come out of prison, as it were, to face trial, and then they're returned to prison, the prison of not of dying, of be, or of being dead, um, and, and it's perfectly consistent with um, substitutionary atonement and so forth. Dr. Peterson, your response? Yeah, real quick, I, I think it's... it's begging the question but at that point in light of everything he just said there uh what was the point of resurrecting the wicked at, at all if, if they were dead and the punishment is death they were already dead i know he'll say they need to die the way they deserve if they're already dead then why did god bother resurrecting the wicked all over again just let them stay dead they got what they deserve why not why resurrect them all over again 
But I point out the reason he resurrects them all over again is because, yeah, they died physically, which is part of what they deserve. There is a physical death that is what sinners deserve. And, and point out, we Christians die even though we've been paid for because our bodies are still sinful in this life. They're still tainted by sin. It's not unjust for us to die, physically speaking, because they're still tainted by sin. But there's also the spiritual death, and that's why he resurrects them, for them to get what they deserve for eternity. All right, here is a question for both. And since the last both question went to Dr. Peterson, we'll start with you, uh, Professor Date. We've talked a lot about heresy, specifically saying that holding to a heresy excludes one from being a Christian. If CI is a heresy, would a layman who simply prefers CI over conscious eternal torment be hellbound? That's a really interesting question that may be a helpful nuance to this debate. I don't know. Um, I think many of us would say that while, say, the Trinity, for example, is an essential of the faith and ongoing persistent rejection of the Trinity, despite being confronted with the evidence from the Bible and from history, uh, that would be heretical. But somebody who becomes a Christian who doesn't even know what the Trinity is yet and doesn't know how to grasp it or whatever, that person might still be saved. So I would say that um, somebody like if if my opponent is right, that conditional immortality is a heresy, then I'm probably damned because I've been such a persistent for 10 years now advocate of it. But the person in the pews who has yet to, uh, you know, who just believes it and hasn't really been committed yet, um, that person might still be saved and may eventually come around to believing what's orthodox. Um, but having said all that, I don't think I don't think there's even a shred of uh, even the remotest degree to which my opponent has substantiated his affirmation of the thesis. But I'll leave that to viewers to decide for themselves. Okay, Dr. Peterson. Well, I can speak to personal experience as well on the same subject of Trinity uh, of uh, someone I knew who denied it, and I was like, "Well, okay, there's a difference between I don't get it, which I think we can all we can all admit, right? I, I don't totally get the Trinity. There's a huge difference between that and no, this is what Scripture teaches, this is what the creeds teach, and they still say, uh-uh, that person heretic condemned and in their current state doesn't mean they can't repent, but it means." As they stand now, they are a heretic. But someone who just doesn't get it or uh, has never been taught, yeah. In fact, one of our meetings we had as elders the other day, we were talking about the blessed inconsistency of Arminianism. And I think that if you take Arminianism to the nth degree, of course it's going to end up in heresy. But vast, vast, vast majority just don't think it all the way through. And I can look at tons of people and say, you, praise God you haven't gone to the nth degree and made this your hill to die on. And you can willingly just say, you know what? Uh, I've, I, I can give them grace. I can recognize that there's still more work to do in them for the Spirit of God, and there's still more work to do in me from the Spirit of God, because I know I probably have some uh, theological errors that he has to work out the kinks on as well. So, so to to uh, get some clarity, what you're saying is, and we'll use the Trinity as the example, so a oneness Pentecostal pastor who understands the issues and flatly reject it they're damned. The typical Southern Baptist Sunday school attendee who uses all kinds of heretical analogies to try to wrap their head around it, they're fine. Yes, that, that so, would be... So same thing, the lay, the lay person in better shape than the uh, Chris Dates of the world. Yes. Okay. Otherwise, I'd, I'd been a heretic until like five years ago. <laughs> got, got it. Wasn't in 
All right, Peter Grice has a question for Dr. Peterson. Could you elaborate on the criterion of logical consistency in inferring heresy and how you see that being applied by God in final judgment? How logical must we be? That's a good question. So, you know, I think a perfect example of logical implication is the Trinity, keeping that topic going. Uh, in the gospel, you can't make heads or tails of it without the Trinity. Uh, the, almost always when the gospel presented, they use the passive voice uh, for Jesus's resurrection. They, they almost always put the onus of action on the father and say the father sent the son, the father raised the son. And uh, Peter says, believe for, and you'll receive the spirit. You, you can't make heads or tails of the gospel without the Trinity. But they never actually went into the doctrine of the Trinity and what it actually means while preaching the gospel, which is why I would call it an implicit doctrine. And the same is true of the final judgment. How logical do we have to be? Again, let's go back to the blessed inconsistencies. You know, you affirm the final judgment, affirm that there is judgment coming and a resurrection. You have to know that, but the exact nature of it, if someone's in ignorance on the subject, again, I can't look at them and say, well, guaranteed, you know too much and you've rejected the truth and therefore you're guaranteed going to hell. I, I don't, I'm not privy to that kind of information. And so I don't know exactly where the line is on how much you need to know before I can say you've rejected too much. I don't know. But I do know that if someone repeatedly rejects the truth, of uh, uh, an essential, explicit or implicit doctrine of the gospel, then it is a heresy. And again, that has to refer to things like, who is Jesus by nature? What is faith by nature? What is repentance by nature? What is the resurrection by nature? Because we, we can all use the same words. We can all say the same lingo. Arians, liberals, people love to steal our lingo and say they believe it, but they, they actually don't. Even Catholics say we're saved by faith not faith alone, they just misdefine and misappropriate the biblical term. So that's why you just have to be gracious and work with people and see what, see what they know and work with them as graciously and lovingly as possible. Okay. Professor Date? Yeah, my position would be that if, if there were truly logical implications of a view that where the implications are heretical, but if an advocate of the view denies that those are in fact the logical implications of that view, they would not be a heretic because I don't think one is deemed, I don't think that one is judged by what the logical implications of a view may be. I think a person is judged by, uh, even if those implications exist, by what they claim to believe, by or by, by what they actually believe. Um, so I'll give you an example. In Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and by the way, I love Wayne Grudem. I cut my teeth as a brand new theologian almost 20 years ago with Wayne's, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's fantastic. I love it. But he makes a heretical statement. He, he says that when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, that was an indication that he had paid the penalty for sin. What is the logical implication of that statement? That what he went on to suffer, namely dying, was not the penalty for sin. It had already been exhausted. So logically, the implications of Wayne's uh, Grudem's statement is heretical. But do I think Grudem is a heretic? No. Why? Because I don't think he follows it through to its logical conclusion. So I would just encourage people to say, look, if you, if you agree with my opponent that the logical implications of my view are heretical, and by the way, you would be doing so without any substantiation having been offered, in my opinion, 
ever so less than humble opinion. Um, if you think that's the case, I don't think those are in fact the logical implications of that view and they're not things that I believe. So I would encourage you to take a stance like mine. So what, so just, just putting this out there to help clarify with the audience what y'all are saying, you're not, a person is not necessarily damned for the accusations of logical inferences they conclude about your position that you don't affirm yourself. So, uh, for example, I can't consign the two of you to the flames because I think the logical implication of your view is that God is the author of all evil and that you have to affirm double predestination of the equal ultimacy variety. Now, y'all reject that, I, that that's the logical conclusion of your beliefs, but either way, we shouldn't go around damning people for what we think are the logical implications of other people's beliefs rather than their actual beliefs, correct? Yes, you need to have much more clarification on what they actually believe before you jump to the logical conclusions. Otherwise, you're going to have a very, very pessimistic view of the church and a very small circle of brothers. Okay. Amen. All right, we have two more questions. This next one is for Dr. Peterson. Do all of the unredeemed suffer equally eternally? Uh, experientially, qualitatively, no. Quantitatively, well, if you want to quantify eternity, then sure. But qualitatively, for example, um, the guy who dies, the aboriginal who dies without ever hearing the gospel, and he dies at a young age, having not rebelled to the worst extent he could have rebelled when he got older, his qualitative experience will be much less uh, horror, horrific than the person who grew up in America, heard the gospel, spat in God's face, spat in the preacher's face, and said no. Uh, so no, I would not say they're equal in terms of the quality. They are equal in terms of quantity if you want to quantify eternity. All right. I don't have anything to offer, really, that I haven't already said. Okay, well, we have one final question, but before we get to that, I do actually wanted to ask a follow-up. For Even though you have nothing to add to that, one thing that, that may you may be able to add to that is do you think that the amount of, since you've mentioned violent, painful death, do you think the intensity of the death sentence would be different for... Uh, I, I, I think I have two ways, neither of which I am committed to, and neither of which exhaust, or the both of which don't exhaust all possibilities. There are probably other possibilities as well. But I'm open to at least two possible ways of accounting for degrees of punishment on my view. One is that, yes, the degree to which the means of execution will inflict pain may differ from person to person. And I think this is just intuitively obvious. Uh, obvious. When we look at the various ways in which people are capitally punished, we have everything from from quick and painless, like the firing squad, arguably lethal injection, arguably hanging, to somewhat more violent and painful deaths, like the electric chair, um, to still more violent deaths, like stoning, to even more violent deaths, like the crucifixion. And it seems to me that we could all agree that, yeah, though on the day of judgment, if, if we were to use the biblical language, people dying by those different means would experience different degrees of pain, and it would be worse for some than it would be for others. And yet, what do, what punishment do all of those things
things inflict death. Um, so I think that is one possible way. But but another possible way has to do with the degree to which people will be remembered negatively after they're gone. We modern Westerners do like to pretend, and it is just that, it's just pretense, that we don't care how we're remembered after we're gone. But we do. That's why we, we imagine what our funerals will be like, and we tear up if we think there's nobody going to be there to say nice things about us. Moreover, it, just a couple of hundred years ago in feudal Japan, samurais would rather kill themselves than bring shame upon their family. So, um, and biblical peoples especially care deeply about how they would be remembered after they're gone. So I contend that Judas Iscariot versus the little old lady atheist down the street, when they are uh, violently killed, and let's just say that they're, they're, the means by which they're killed is relatively comparable. Um, Judas Iscariot will be remembered forever by God's people as the people who betrayed our Messiah into the hands of his murderers. Um, we will forever remember him in that kind of contempt and just imagine how we will hold Hitler and many others in contempt. But imagine that the little old lady down the street who's an atheist and, and who has denied Christ and so forth, nevertheless, you know, maybe was very friendly to her neighbors. Maybe there was a little kid one day riding by her house who fell over on his bike and she rushed out there and bandaged his wound and comforted him and calmed him down. And that kid may go on to become a Christian. And now just imagine that for all eternity, that saved man will have these fond memories of that little lady, a little old lady who, despite having been annihilated trillions of years ago, will, um, uh, nevertheless cared for him in a time of need. So she'll be remembered very fondly. I think that, and and the awareness of those differences, if if those are made aware to the wicked on the day of judgment, I think that too can account for degrees of punishment. And again, I don't think that these two options I've offered exhaust the possible ways in which we annihilationists could account for degrees. Dr. Peterson, did you want to follow up with any comments on that? Well, I'd be curious, you know, maybe another topic, another point, because I have no problem keeping discussion going on our own. But uh, I seem to remember Isaiah 66, I believe it is, maybe 65, and Revelation 21 saying that the former things have passed away and the former things are remembered no more. So I feel like the explanation of, oh, your reputation is a negative one for all of eternity theoretically would be irrelevant because when we're in heaven and in the kingdom, we're not going to be concerning ourselves with the things that happened in the past, but that's just the first thing that came into my head. All right. Well, we've got the final question from Dustin Ellerby. Thank you for the super chat. We appreciate that very much. And this is for both. Could the concept be that those who died remained dead until God chose to raise them with a new body before entering the kingdom. We'll start with you, Dr. Peterson, and then let Chris State respond. I was hoping you were going to ask him first. Repeat the question for me. I saw you looking up too, Chris, trying to... <laughs> okay. Could the concept be that those who died remain dead until God chose to raise them with a new body before entering the kingdom? Do you want me to take that first? Because I might have an idea where he's going with that. Sure. Yes, go ahead. So one possibility is he's talking about something that I can't distinguish from the fact of the matter when it comes to the righteous. We will die. We will remain dead until God raises us, makes us glorious and immortal, at which point we'll enter the kingdom of God. So I doubt he's talking about that. I think no. what he means is, is it possible that on the day of judgment— the resurrected wicked could die again and remain dead until God resurrects them and then makes them able to enter the kingdom of God. I can't understand his question apart from that. Um, but what I would say to that is, 
if they have been destroyed in both body and soul, then the only conceivable grounds for raising them from the dead and glorifying them and ushering them into the presence of God would be repentance, but they have been destroyed in both body and soul. And when I say repentance, I mean saving faith and the repentance that results from it. So if there's nobody around any longer to express saving faith and repent, then what grounds would there be to be resurrected, glorified, and enter into the eternal kingdom? I, I, I don't know how you could possibly account for that. All right. But maybe maybe that person could clarify, uh, but otherwise I don't know. Josh, do you have any other thoughts on what the questioner might have meant? I mean, the first thing I thought it was, it sound, like, I thought the same thing, like in relation to the righteous, like that. that's, I think, what happens, that we stay yeah, exactly. resurrected and we're, we're good to go. Uh, in terms of the wicked, you know, I'm, I'm not a second chance theologian that the, the, the judgment, whether you, and Chris would agree with this, whether you're annihilationist or eternal conscious torment, you have to agree that that's it. Uh, that the verdict is final. I, I do think that one especially is a uh, an orthodox issue as well, that that uh, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that there's no uh, second chance uh, conversions after this life, that, that that's it. Because um, like you said, when they're resurrected, they will see everything as it is. They'll see God. They'll, they'll even bow their knee to Jesus. If they're wicked and they're not uh, regenerate, it'll be out of obligation. In the same way, you know, he'll, he'll, Jesus with the rod of iron will bust their kneecaps open to get them down, but they will bow. Uh, but the issue is whether or not they've repented, and no, they won't. In fact, Jesus said that the wicked gnash their teeth uh, in the final judgment, and I would posit for the rest of eternity, and that's why it's eternal for them. All right. Well, that brings our Q&A portion to a close. I want to thank you, gentlemen, for participating. And Dr. Peterson, if people want to find out more about you or your church or, or your thoughts on anything or want to get in touch with you, how can they find you on the Internet? Yeah, so uh, I'm a pastor at the Church Providence Christian Church down here in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. So uh, our website, ProvidenceChristianNMForNewMexico.com. I post on our blog there most days of the week. You might uh, see some annihilationist topics coming up in the next coming days. So if you want some follow-up on things I didn't get a chance to talk about or I completely blew, I might post some more stuff there if you're interested. Or uh, all my contact info is there as well if you're interested in getting in touch. All right. Professor Date, where can people find you, get a hold of you, and all of that? The ministry's website is RethinkingHell.com. We also have a YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash RethinkingHell, where we live stream every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, so I would go to those places. We're also, our podcast is in iTunes and everywhere, or well, many places you would go to get uh, podcasts. Uh, I have my own personal um, live stream on alternating Mondays, which people can find at youtube.com slash theopologetics. It's sort of a combination of the words theology and apologetics. Um, and as far as getting in contact with me, you can email me at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com, or you can befriend me on Facebook, send me a message to let me know that you're a real person and not some sort of uh, scammer or a um, and I'm happy to discuss our disagreements as long as the day is long. My request would just be that you is, be as friendly and as respectful as Josh was. And um, just let me say, Josh, um, I meant what I said earlier. I have a tremendous amount of admiration and affection for you. Like you said, we have tons of things in common. Um, and I will continue to hold out hope that uh, I will persuade you I'm not a heretic one day. But even if not, I just want you to know that the way you have treated me was incredibly respectful. I feel respected and loved, and I appreciate that even if i'm not a brother at the very least you treated me like a bearer of the divine image and i want to thank you for that so yeah no problem you deserve it 
All right, and with that, we're gonna put their information in the description below the video. So if you didn't hear what they just said about all that, where you can find them, you can find it in the description. And thank you all for attending our debate tonight. And we hope that this is watched again and again over the next days, weeks, and months, and that you will think, consider, and deliberate on the issues that were raised tonight. And with that, we will see you next time on Trinity Radio.